What's going on, everybody? Cali Death Podcast back once again, episode 60. I'm always here every Friday for you guys uh, with my resident homies, as always, Casey, Joel, and Joseph. Joseph coming in hot from fucking Bangladesh right now, dude. What That's crazy, dude. <laughs> Couldn't yeah. miss an episode, dude. We got him from across the world right now. So for you guys, it's 7.30 Thursday evening. For me, it's 9.30 Friday morning. So or, yeah, but it's us. Yeah. Thursday for us and Friday morning for you. That's fucking gnarly. Last time we had that was uh talking to uh the psychroptic Dave from fucking psychroptic. It's crazy yeah, yeah. you think about it being next day. But uh yeah, always with thanks for being here with me, guys. Thank you for coming to hang out with us this week, all you listeners, all you new listeners, old listeners. What up, y'all? Um yeah, dude, we don't have anything to plug this week, so uh, let's get right into this. I mean, it's super, super fucking exciting episode for me. Um, an honor, all these, you know, those fucking words, all that shit, dude. Excited, honored, all that shit. Cali Death, this is this is like one of the biggest things for this, this uh, show because it's like, you know, with all the death discography being so fucking influential to all of us as musicians coming up you know uh, i'm gonna get to it but steve was actually actually on like several different first albums that i heard from bands coming up and um but yeah steve de giorgio is with us from fucking sadist death Testament, name name them all. You have to name them all. Autopsy, the- <laughs> fucking, just keep going, dude. It just never fucking stops. And the and and yes, I'm just really fucking happy that this is happening right now. What's going on, Steve? Howdy, guys. I'm really glad to be here, and um, we can get to the rest of that list as we go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's kind of how we we go through the whole timeline. I mean, we don't have to spend too much time on certain things but you got a, since you got a long list of uh, a big past <laughs> it, 30 plus years of a fucking career you know it's like uh, we're not going to be able to stay anywhere too long with this but i mean dude steve we're here as long as you can keep talking to us bro i'm i'll i'll go to fucking work hurting tomorrow well, i don't care I, I got an hourglass that's ticking away so when we get uh... a <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, when we were corresponding uh you know within the last few couple of weeks and you told me that that's cocktail time and 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 you got a lot of stories i'm like dude this is fucking this is exactly what we want for this show dude so Thank you very much for giving us your time. I know you've been a busy dude. We've been talking and you, you've been doing several things since we've been talking. Yeah. Um, but yeah, dude, how we usually do this, Steve, is we want to go back all the way to as far as you could take us, take us to childhood when, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, dude, when, when music became like something important, not just background music. Jeez, talk, talk about like, like what your parents were listening to when you're, you're fucking around with your toys and, and you know, there's <laughs> shit like that when you're what what sparked the oh, okay, I'm I'm interested in music. I'm gonna start. Yeah, I mean that's it's pretty relevant actually to to start there. My mom was a big part of it. She was um she was kind of dabbled as a musician. She kind of I think she tried violin for a short time and and um, she wanted to play piano. So we had one in the house. So as a little kid, you know, you go up there and it's fun. It's a huge thing. And you, you know, you don't need any skill to push the keys. And I was uh, pretty entranced by that. And I, I kind of, um, she had a little like student instructor book where 
it shows you the note on the staff and then it shows you where the note is on the piano. So I kind of taught myself how to read music. Now, this is at a level that's, you know, little kid playing single notes, following a basic, you know, mm-hmm. staff. There wasn't any kind of crazy keys or modulating going on. But, but you're still um, finding the association in it all. Yeah. So I think because I, I was interested in the sound of it and, and learned to associate, you know, the, the visual note with the note on the thing, I, I, I think just, it was always there. I mean, I think I learned how to read music when around the same age as I learned how to read words, you know, so it was wow. just part of it. So mom was a big part to have that available and, and you know, pique my curiosity and stuff. And of course, she would always be jamming tunes, you know, she was really into going to concerts and playing records in the house. So, I mean, there was some stuff I couldn't stand like anyone, you know, you can't, you know, um, a lot of stuff she liked that was cool as a kid you know like stuff you know in the late 60s early 70s like seals and crofts and a lot of jazz like herb alpert and um dave brubeck and just just you know stuff of her time was really cool zeppelin Mm -hmm. and um just a big mix she even had a ravi shankar album because he he i guess maybe she got wind of him through the uh i think it was monterey jazz festival it's a kind of a made into a movie um you know, so all that stuff was cool. It's just, um, once you got into Elvis, man, I just, that was it. I could not stand fucking yeah. Elvis Presley, but, <laughs> but yeah. for the most I'm part, it was good. Cool. Yeah. It was just, so yeah. So she, she opened that door, you know, tunes were there. I'd always kind of thumb through her little, she had a nice old fashioned kind of case where the records were put in nice and it just had that smell of wood and, you know, cedar and vinyl and, I just remember that it was always all cool those and- things. It's just funny when you mentioning that right now, because it's like the the digital age doesn't get any of those uh, perks that come with flipping no. through records and smelling the wood and smelling the like none of that. You get no you get it's like a sensory deprivation thing almost with digital music. Yeah, and there's just and there's more to do because you know it's putting a record on as a thing and then putting the the arm over on it but then she had a little uh 45 single of brandy um uh who was that brandy or a fine girl oh. you know what a good wife you would be yeah. so you, the hole's bigger so you got to put a little plastic thing in the hole to make it fit and there's this it's involved you know mm-hmm, and it's mm-hmm. process and so yeah and i guess technology makes things easier there's less parts less stuff but like you said you're missing an experience and that's what I grew up with. And, totally. you know, obviously that's kind of a nutshell of it. I mean, there's a whole progression that goes with getting more into uh, stuff that rocks and then eventually, you know, finding out I wanted to do that. So, okay, let's just go over that just a little bit. So you, when do you get to that next step of you're getting more serious with it? You're starting to rock. You're starting to find things that rock more. And when do you want to start, you know, actually playing an instrument? Well, because I had shown a knack for it, you know, since I was a little kid, I was always enrolled in the school band class. So I went through, you know, I was playing, um, played bass clarinet and I played uh, baritone, tuba, trombone, just stuff in school, whatever was available. And I, I jumped around and it was kind of cool to double up on classes, you know, get out of shop class and other requirements. I just got 
thick on band classes because it was easy. Mm -hmm. It was it was my, you know, it, my knack, and it was an easy way to up the grade point average too because you know I was an easy A in band class. So hell yeah, yeah, played all kinds of those instruments and and stuff, and and it was cool. And we and we traveled. We did concerts, and that was I did no idea at the time, but that was a cool precursor to my professional career mm -hmm. travel you know you when you make your first heavy metal band and you start going in a van and playing shows and, you know everybody's really excited it's the first time they've been away from home and i'm sitting there thinking like well you know i'm at least experienced in this regard but totally. um but it did you know i think just i think even though i had this whole early fundamental development i don't i think the desire to rock uh, we'll call it kind of hit me at about the same age as everyone else. You know, it's probably high school mm -hmm. and um, you know, the he heavy music was a thing and I, I wanted to play that. And at the time that at this time, when I wanted to, you know, learn to do it myself, the type of band class I was in was, was orchestra. And that was when I first started on, uh, on the big bass on the big stand up upright bass and so it was easy to gravitate towards that electrically and um and just like everyone else you know i i was sitting on the edge of my bed with my record player and my new bass guitar learning you know rush iron maiden black sabbath jethro tall you know rainbow all you know you go down the whole list like every like i said like everyone else i think that hit me about the same time and i just picked it up quicker i guess because you know i had a little bit of training but um but what, once i got you, into what learning year were, what year were you in high school like what year were you years were you in high school uh early to mid 80s i graduated okay. in 85 so okay you know yeah probably 82 83 around then is when it i hit. was i was one you were one, <laughs> I was one year old <laughs> uh, so um but once i started learning those songs off the record on my own that's pretty much the direction I kept, you know, I, you know, once I graduated high school, there was no more, you know, traditional band classes or anything. I just, cause we, we actually formed status in high school. That's where I first, wanted to go. was like, is there okay. a high school band that, that, and, and also I just want to take it back real quick to the getting exposed to extreme music. Like when's the first thrash record you heard, obviously Metallica and Slayer and all that shit, but like the more underground shit, like where you were like, Oh, these guys are dope yeah um it was probably a group of guys that i was jamming with right before we made sadis um you know the the heavy stuff was coming out you know motley crew was pretty heavy except um you know stuff like stuff like that was kind of heavy but there was an older guitar he was already out of high school and he had an amazing record collection we found demon anvil uh merciful fate exciter you know and he's in, in slayer show no mercy he had this big collection of the underground and so it was probably a typical you know older brother type of situation he, mm -hmm, he was a mm -hmm. you know a friend but i'm sure a lot of people have an older brother or an older cousin or something kind that's of that's actually a common thing that we find out yeah and so he was the guy he was a guitar player in this little cover group we had you know we were doing you know maiden and priest covers just after school and and he turned us on to that stuff and it was just like wow this shit's evil you know and uh and that's that's what opened that huge door and um that's pretty much how we found the the group of guys that made sadas you know we were definitely um 
hell bent on playing stuff heavier than Priest and Maiden and and shit like that. That was that was about as heavy as it got, you know. And and heavy metal was a term. I think you know Iron Maiden and maybe like Angel Witch and Accept that kind of stuff was starting to be called speed metal because it was just like Iron Maiden but faster. Mm-hmm. And so that's all we thought Sadist was, you know, the word thrash didn't come around for a while. And really when the word thrash came out, it's kind of more what the crowd did. Yeah. Um, they kind of thrashed. We were play- up there playing speed metal. And then eventually this, the whole scene just became thrash. You know, I guess anthrax had a lot to do with a lot of terminology that we use now. So once the East coast infiltrated the Bay area, we picked up a lot of those terms and stuff. Yeah. But, yeah. Uh, yeah. So, okay. So Sadus becomes a thing. Did you guys have any previous name before Sadus? Yeah, we did. Let's yeah. You either did your research or, or your, or your general questionnaire is pretty on point. So um, thanks dude. <laughs> <laughs> no research, so, just interested. <laughs> yeah. We were just, we were all, we had, we had really hit the ground running when we first hooked up the first day after school, we wrote a whole song. We were psyched. Because yeah. we didn't have to, we didn't have to learn anybody else's song. This we were, you know, we were seniors in high school. This is in 1984, and we were hell bent on writing our own stuff because we had already been through the cover scene, and and that's fun, but it felt kind of alien to write your own stuff. So we were hell bent on. It. So first practice, boom, song in the can, cool. Let's do it again tomorrow. All right, after school we meet again. Song two day three song three and we did that about we got about four or five songs in a row and oh shit this is pretty good you know um so everyone go home tonight think of a name for the group we'll come back tomorrow's rehearsal and see what it and all four if Sadis was a four piece then all four of us had really crappy names you know and and we didn't know what to do um our first gig was supposed to be the talent show and we were going to play Metallica's version of Am I Evil? Mm. And in the song, where he, towards the end, when he says, Am I Evil? Yes, I fucking am. We had this whole emphasis strategized where we were going to say fucking right in front of the whole auditorium <laughs> of the high school. And that was a big deal, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <Fuck> yeah. <laughs> a real big deal for high school kids. So <laughs> we had this whole plan, but when we went to sign up, to get on the talent show what's the name of your band we're like shit we don't have one so there's one of the songs we play called torture it's on our first record where um darren says um uh, how's it go uh, he goes we need dtp death to posers is what i mean so we were all on this hell-bent thing about you know posers and you know screw that crap so that's the false metal type shit. Yeah. yeah so right off the top of his head he just goes uh we're called dtp all right. So we went under that name for a while <laughs> and um, we we thought maybe it was good enough. You know, we were like, because I mean, we were in high school. We had no idea what the real world thinks. And we thought it was good enough. But then, you know, with our with our lead singer guitarist being named Darren Travis, initials DT, they started calling it Darren Travis Project. So, oh, shit. <laughs> no, fuck that. <laughs> so he was like, no, nah, we got to we need a unique name and stuff. And we still couldn't come up with one. And we had. We had some buddies that would always come around, you know, guys that would, you know, buy beer and hang out. And they'd love to go to the kegger parties we play and just they'd be the life of the party. They would thrash everybody, they'd push people through windows. And it was kind of like our, you know, every band has kind of like a posse, you know, and mm-hmm, totally. these guys were in our posse. And one of them, 
was really great artist. He, he would always sketch stuff and he would, he would listen to the lyrics of our songs and draw drawings based on what he heard. And those eventually became our flyers for our shows, which were basically Sick. people's backyards or living rooms or kegger parties. We'd play bowling alley when it's closed. We would set up on the lanes like a stage. You know, we just did all kinds of throw together gigs. And so we'd make these really elaborate flyers with cool drawings and stuff. And, and this guy, um, he, sh he showed up one day to rehearsal and he was super hung over. He had his, he was put his head on the pillow in the bass drum and he didn't even, he could sleep through that crap of us. <laughs> the bass drum pound right next to his head. And, and uh, we're, we were talking about the band name that moment. And we said, uh, anybody come up with a name? And someone go, his name's Rick. And he goes, Hey, Rick, Hey, uh, tell everyone that idea you had. He's all, uh, what? And he wakes up. Tell everyone the idea you had, the name for the band. And he goes, oh, I was reading a science fiction novel and I found a cool name in the glossary, man. It's Sadist. And in my head, I heard S-A-D-I-S-T. And I was like, okay with it. I'm like, okay, cool. That fits a metal band, you know? So, so then the next process well then of course everybody in the band was like yeah cool cool that's a name that's something better than we had so the next the next thing was like okay everyone go home tonight and, and draw a logo and then whoever's got the best logo tomorrow the one we pick <laughs> of course i drew s-a-d-i-s-t and they were laughing at me because i didn't know what science fiction novel he read and the name but s-a-d-u-s apparently it was and mm -hmm. i lost the logo competition and uh, <laughs> the guy the guy who actually won it was the guy who thought of the name and um he went on to, we went, we used one of his flyer drawings or, or kind of more like a, a better than a flyer level drawing to do the first album cover. And for years now, he runs a tattoo studio as, as a main artist, but uh, that's the guy, Rick Rogers. So he thought of the name and the logo and trip. That's so he we wasn't even me. part of the band. He just, well, part of the band, but not playing it, you know, he's yeah, yeah. definitely family, but uh, yeah, he wasn't one in the lineup. Totally. We got a few of the, I think all bands that have been together for a long time end up having the extra people that are part of the posse and they're just like at rehearsals all the time. And Dude, we had a huge, huge part, huge group around us. And you said, you know, where Antioch is, you know, we're yeah. yep. especially in the eighties, this is out in the orchards. We're not Bay area at all. You mm -hmm. know, it even still it's, it's East County. I know the freeway is bigger and it feels connected, but we were far from the Bay area. So when we went to shows and saw the scene, you know, we felt like outcasts. I'm sure we look like outcasts. Um, but our, our, our hangers on our posse, they were a rough bunch, man. They were, and we had a couple really big dudes. And then the little dudes were even tougher. Really, and we would we would go to shows at Ruthie's Inn and and Berkeley Square and Mabuhay and Stone and Broadway and all these places and and our crew, their goal was to smash everybody. They <laughs> yeah. didn't care. They didn't care. I mean, they were out for blood. And one time, one time we played at a Ruthie's Inn, and Forbidden Evil was. They were one of the bands playing. We were supporting Forbidden Evil. Or there might even have been a bigger headliner. I just remember Forbidden Evil was there. And well, a couple of their buddies were in the bathroom all tweaked out on meth, taking a leak, talking to each other. And our buddies were in the stall, probably doing a line or something. And 
they heard these guys all fired up, like, oh, we're going to be the best thrashers out there. We're going to kick everyone's ass. And, of course, <laughs> you know, the sadist kill team crew hears that, and it was on. It was blood everywhere. There was chairs flying, chains. Damn. Jesus. Crazy shit. So Forbidden Evil hated us, and that word spread to the circle, like Debbie Abano's kind of circle of, of violence and um, Exodus, Possessed, Testament. Like, these guys all thought the sadist hicks – from the orchards were nothing to deal with. So we got blacklisted pretty early. It was hard for us to get on shows really hard because, and it's funny because everyone in the band, like that's when I met Craig and um, Glenn and I got along and Russ too. And we got along great. And all the band members would hang out, chill and talk. Like it wasn't band against band. It was just like the, the posse fight, Mm -hmm. you know, (laughs) but they were associated with us. So, it was that tough. you don't really see that too much now when you everybody's kind of just like love and peace at death metal shows and shit like that you know if yeah, you see that in the hardcore hardcore clicks and shit like that that is kind of that mentality well, but probably back just, then there was more like territory too it's like more like it's a new thing like there's a new territory to be had and stuff and like who's the craziest who's the you know it's like almost you see it kind of nowadays actually with the hardcore scene there's there's like the the hardcore kids there's like crews there's like gangs that go around and be like what they're not actually they're not even there for the music usually that they're just like to they just want to start a ruckus yeah it sounds like it sounds like steve's homies are just there to fuck some shit up (laughs) well i mean all that stuff's valid it is territorial and it's all that stuff but i mean you got to think too and you know a couple of you guys are from norcal in the 80s it was all about just being on meth and being crazy insane motherfuckers i mean Jesus. you're just on speed just you can't be stopped you know <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah and the bands we we would sit on the sideline just burn a doob and just watch the shit i mean yeah. we, you know we weren't into that part i mean it was fun we were into it to watch but we weren't our hands were too valuable to go that crazy man i mean guys would you know we'd we'd load out back in our houses like four or five in the morning and by Launch the next day, our buddies would have casts on their hands and shit. So damn, <laughs> they're like, no, nah, not for us, man. But you know, it was it was cool to see it. But um, but yeah, we paid a little paid a little price for having that reputation. But because of it, you know, we kind of um developed our own clique. With um, there was a band up here called Hex. If you remember Hex, Sounds, yeah, and um. And, and the newly formed autopsy, which we were already buddies with, but mm-hmm. they also got kind of a weird reputation. So we, we did a lot of shows on our own, Hex, Adis, Autopsy. You know, we were, we were our own satellite click in the Bay Area. And, and uh, the, it, uh, when it comes to DIY, that's the most DIY. Just get your own package and say, fuck everybody else, dude. Yeah. You know, we didn't really play the game like all the, all the other guys, you know, and now, you know, fast forward to the future you know friends with phil demo and um rob flynn and the whole list i mean fuck i'm in testament you know that was one of the bands that didn't like us so (laughs) you know everyone grows up and forgets that shit so Mm -hmm. it's funny to kind of recount it with you guys because uh you know if we stayed at that level man i probably never would have got on the map (laughs) right it's uh i mean it's just a, a a testament to uh younger nice. fucking kids dude like adolescence uh when you become like a middle of tw- like 25 26 years old that's when shit like that starts to level out and 
everybody realizes like, why the fuck did we, you know, do this, do that. And, totally. it, and then everybody just kind of comes together at certain points too. It's, yeah. I mean, we're all in it. It's all metal love, dude. I mean, we're like 18, 19 years old, you know, and we're playing with bands that are guys in like 21, 22. And also the clubs, you know, it was two employees. There was a guy at the front door taking tickets and one bartender. Absolutely no security. I mean, the scene is brand new. It's the, the underground thrashing. They didn't know how to deal with it. They just mm-hmm. turned their back and let, you know, let the ambulance clean it up afterwards. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's crazy, dude. So, yeah. okay. So Hex autopsy and sadus are are just teamed up you guys get your local things going is that what it is or you guys actually take that out as a tour package well tour as much as you could do in a station wagon and uh, (laughs) yeah we played we went up to nevada city and played a cool remote gig and that was cool because you know we got to kind of thrash a hotel room like we always thought that was required you know and um Went up to Portland and played, went down to SoCal, played in, um, oh, what's that? Is it El Segundo or, uh, I don't know, one of those crazy, one of the crazy kind of outliers of the main city. And, and, uh, yeah, so uh, West Coast stuff, you know, mm-hmm. not, not really like tour, but we did road trips where we got to go, you know, overnight and play stuff. And, uh, so played when- Fresno. There's a Fresno oh, gig shit. online, actually. Oh, really? Yeah. What was the name of the the local band? Betrayal was the band down there that kind of hosted the gig. But the three of us went down, Sadis, Hex, Autopsy, and uh, And played Betrayal. Nice. Fresno. (laughs) (laughs) Fucking Fresno, dude. I know you were talking about like the, how the, because that's something I didn't really know how the, the scene, the Bay Area scene was like, I mean, as my parents would say, speed, you know, they always said speed. But I never like equated that. Well, like, what is that like a pill that you take? Or it's actually meth, you know. So like the whole scene down there was like in that scene, you know, in the the meth scene. And Fresno definitely is probably the mecca for that. But you know, like- <laughs> I think up here was man because and, and it was called crank back then. I don't, I don't yeah, think the word too. really. Crank, like, crank. Yeah, young people kind of like crank, crank. But uh, crank was the main word. And there was a. There was a cool band from Martinez called Bloodbath. We got to know those guys. They kind of were the first band to kind of take us under the wing because we we had a lot of drive, man, but we only thought locally. We were playing a ton of kegger parties. We were writing songs, very, very productive as a young band, but had no idea how to branch out. We didn't know about the big world. And, and the guys from Bloodbath, the ones that told us, like, you need to go to a studio record a cassette and start mailing it and they showed us our first you know xerox version of a fanzine and you know send your tape here and then they talk about it and people write and oh okay cool so we had no idea and and bloodbath were they were kind of cool to us showing us that thing and once once we went to the studio and made a tape yeah it really took off and um and yeah they showed us the way but those it was easy to remember bloodbath because we started talking about meth and crank those guys were poo boy <laughs> <laughs> crazy <laughs> i hope they're st- i hope they're still with us man i, I just we're talking so about i never really even thought later. about i never even thought about meth and metal being like a thing you know i know yeah. that coke and and psychedelics and plenty of weed and alcohol but i never thought that you know crank would be something involved in metal as well 
huge. I remember going up to Guerneville, the River Theater. Oh, shit, what, dude. I got remember? a house. I, my family just sold a house there. It was there since my dad was a kid, dude. And I know Guerneville, so I know exactly what you're about it's, to it's say. It's right on the main drive right there. Yep. The, 116 all the way down to the fuck you take that all the way out to the coast. river theater we went up there and we watched uh possessed and death angel and we snuck backstage and we watched those guys snort the entire table before they ah. played man <laughs> jesus God and damn, of course and it, that was another like kind of i remember that key moment in sadist history because we didn't do a lot of it we you know, it would be stupid to say nobody in the band touched it, but we, I could say it's safe to say we didn't like really get into it. It wasn't yeah. our trip. We just burn weed and drink mm, beer. Yeah. But, um, I remember, so we knew what it did and obviously it, it did what it's called. It's speed. It made you go faster, talk mm -hmm. faster, think faster, made, you know, made you do a bunch of stupid shit because of that, but it was speed. And we watched Death Angel and Possessed, which in our opinion were quite fast. And when they hit the stage, they played slower than album speed. And that blew us away. So that was another <laughs> motivating factor for Sadis to always, every day, just play faster than we did the day before. It was maybe not the best career decision to, you know, accumulate listeners, but that was our motivation. It was to just, it was about playing fast, mm -hmm. you know, and, and one of the songs, and it's also big t-shirt designs twisted face it's about that coming up from the mirror and just you know people yeah. just getting that twisted mm. and so mm. it's kind of it's a little bit kind of an anti-speed lyric version but it's about that scene and, and doing it but our speed was you know like i said just harking down a big skunk hooger and just <laughs> playing like we were on speed but you know <laughs> yeah that's the same thing as me dude is fucking everybody would get high and then we would play fucking 250 beats per minute and you're like wait that doesn't make sense dude but we're doing it it gives you some kind of charge it gives uh, i mean actually for for your scene too uh definitely like steve you're fucking you called it speed metal i think for a reason i think it was it was yeah. definitely like you know it's probably influenced a little bit by that yeah, I mean, the whole crank meth thing back then, I mean, obviously we know the word speed applied, but no one ever really called the drug speed so much. It wasn't the main thing. Speed was about playing and stuff. So it was kind of more about that. But man, it reminds me of this one time we, it was a testament show at the Stone and the Blind Illusion was direct support and we were before them. And so they crammed Sadis and Blind Illusion in the small dressing room and, um, and they knew, especially Larry, they knew that we were one of the faster bands of the whole area. And they just kept talking like, man, we can't wait to see this shit. This is going to be cool. And, and um, of course, we're just smoking just really skunky weed the whole time. And they're like, you know, you guys are, you guys are getting kind of high to play. I mean, what, what else do you do? How do you, how do you enhance to go fast? We're like, mm -hmm bro, this is it. You know, I mean, <laughs> drink some low and brow maybe, but, um, yeah. you know, that's it. And they were like, Oh my God. You know, and the drummer, uh, Mike minor, he was a blast, but, but Les was involved in, in Mark singer, especially they were like, okay, this is what we do. We dose up on acid, but we, they said they, they time it. Especially minor, man. He was an awesome drummer and, uh, real scientific mind and he, he had this whole system down to where they would time it where they would where they would dose at the perfect time to where they would get about third fourth song in until it hit 
So they go up there and they're not tripping yet. And they would kind of get their legs and get their, you know, get their bearings and play. And then all of a sudden it would take off. You ever watch a blind illusion show from mid to late eighties, you'll start noticing, you know, first couple songs are cool. And then eventually the whole thing just kind of blurs <laughs> like a kaleidoscope. Yeah. <laughs> That's so cool. Well, I mean, it makes sense too. They want to like, you said, get their, get their footing, make sure that they're, they're planted on that stage, making sounds that like, you know, their songs and shit. And before they, let that wave come and then they, they're riding it out <laughs> and about mid set they're just you know like a, like jack black riding the rainbow with baby bigfoot all of a oh, sudden they're dude, just drop <laughs> nice I mean, it was crazy but they so but that was that fit their trip you know they were they were psychedelic thrash metal kind of stuff mm -hmm. and, but they couldn't believe their eyes with us you know we were um just imbibing in what people call downers. I mean, weed and beer is not like a drug downer, but it, it, they're not speed. And we would go out there and just, yeah. and they were just like, holy crap, I don't, I don't get it. I don't get it. So we, we had a reputation of having kind of the best bud in the area, just mainly because it was just like Cheech and Chong smoke clouds coming out of where we went. But I wonder if that's like the same kind of deal with like people getting high before they work out. Like you, you end up getting into that flow state and you actually forget about all the like, uh, you know, drive or like muscle tension and all that shit that's happening while you're working out. Maybe it's the same thing with, you know, playing metal. You can get, well, dude, I mean, have you guys ever been in a dispensary? I mean, I mean, they got this shit categorized like a library now. You know, when we were young, there were two words, two different kinds of weed. That's it. Good and mm -hmm, bad. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was it. Brown and green. Me too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They'd be like, this stuff's chronic. And that's all. You know, there's and no bomb. strain or anything. Yeah. No, we had good or bad. And now you go into dispensary and they go, oh, we got indica and sativa. What and are you looking like, for? They're like, yeah, oh, does, does, well, your, does your knee hurt? How do you want yeah. to? <laughs> which one does which? And like, oh, indica's like sit in the couch and 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 chill. And sativa's like fucking, oh, we're like, ah, ding, bell goes off. Okay, that's always what we were smoking when we were young because. Sativa. Yeah, we had to get up and do shit. We oh, yeah, dude. <laughs> Definitely. I mean, before take a couple puffs of sativa before I write, every time I write, just to get everything firing you know it, it it it's good for creativity but yeah the indicas are like come home you don't want to do shit after work you fucking sit on your couch and melt into it <laughs> i guess so so i've been told <laughs> <laughs> um so can i ask you man um when did you get into like playing fretless bass where you started out on a regular fretted electric and then you switched over at some point well, I, I kind of alluded to it a few minutes ago. The when I started out on electric bass, it was it was a fretted. It was uh, one of the guys in the orchestra class. The other bass player had brought in a, like a Fender Jazz or something. It was the first time I ever touched an electric bass. And it, at the time, I was playing upright in a class that's full of violin, viola, cello, and and they call it contrabass is the big stand-up bass. And when you learn those you learn by position first first position is up you know what would be equivalent to the to the nut <laughs> and you just you learn all the notes in that range and then you learn second position you learn all those notes in the third position you're almost up to the 12th fret equivalent and mm -hmm. you just learn those notes where they are you just memorize them and, and you go by sound and so you know these instruments have been around for hundreds of years. So playing fretless is no 
you know, scientific feet. It's, it's pretty intuitive, but that's, that's what I learned. And then when the guy in Bancos brought an electric, I mean, you got dots and markers and frets and lines and everything. And it was just so easy. Um, I picked it up probably in five seconds. Um, mm -hmm. It's basically the same instrument but just a little bit easier and the attack is super easy with electronics and everything. So, um, yeah, from probably went home from school that day and told my mom, that's what I'm getting. And she can't say no, because I, mm -hmm. I knew it was for me. So, yeah, I mean, probably, I know I didn't have my driver's license. So probably 14, 15, something like that. Wow. So, Back to status and uh, recording. Ah, yeah, I just it just dawned on me what your question was. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, so I, I get I get my first electric bass and I'm playing it for uh, probably a couple years. And I always had the thought in mind, what if it was like the big one that I learned on, but down in a nice loud electric form? And I never you know being from a small town like well, well what it was in the 80s it's fucking huge now but back then I, I just didn't know if it was a thing i didn't know if it was a reality to have an electric bass without frets um i overheard my cousin who also played bass talking about peeling the frets out of his and i thought well you know i don't i don't know if i should do that i, I wasn't you know crafty with wood or anything and i think i was flipping through a fender park catalog and i saw a jazz neck for sale just ebony board slap it on and and i just went boom there it is and so i had uh my rickenbacker around graduation maybe a little before so my first bass that i bought became a spare and so that was the experiment you know and i just bought the damn neck off the catalog and put it on myself and here it is this is still this is the base from high school right here wow. <laughs> but that's the neck and it came completely raw i had to drill the holes and put in the keys and that because it was raw i just customized it i didn't put that i wrote that in probably like i don't know like 86 or 87 something Damn. like that oh, dude, the paint so has lasted so that's like, is that what you play on the Sadist records too? Yeah. Well, not all in the early ones. The earlier ones. Yeah. Um, like A Vision of Misery, did, did was it that one or was yeah. it a different one? Nice. Yeah. And the, and the band photo on the back, I'm holding this bass. And um, also Autopsy, uh, the the EP, um, Fiend for Blood, I think was a, was the first time this was in the studio. And then. I don't, I don't remember if Autopsy was before Sadis or Sadis. For, it was uh, between Vision of Misery and Fiend for Blood. But those were the first two between those. This And the third album was Individual Thought Patterns. And Wow. Oh, that's – an that's oh, my God. This dude. baby is Individual Thought Patterns, and I, I keep it right in reach because this is the one that put me on the map. <laughs> wow, dude. That's fucking Damn. insane, bro. And that's super cool to be like – I'm – playing on death individual thought patterns with my high school bass bro what's up dude fuck all <laughs> you guys like well I, I didn't really have much money so no totally I mean, but it's, even, it's it's with with to get that 
that record and your performance out, it, it, I would have been like, Oh dude, he's playing like a $5,000 bass. No. You know? <laughs> no, any musician knows that. Um, I'm not a you musician. Know, you, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, you are, um, <laughs> yeah. Vocal. Okay. Yeah. You're right. Yeah. <laughs> no, but, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, there's, there's a level between, I mean, obviously if you compare quality to crap, you can hear the difference, but once you get above that line into, I guess we'll call it lower quality, anything above that is really arbitrary. I mean, yeah, just because it's expensive doesn't mean it's better. Mm-hmm. Totally. You know, of course we're talking about, you know, not PV or Kmart crap, but, but yeah. anything, anything in a normal realm, I mean, you know, you can make it sound good. if you're. And also you know, like we've heard a million, you know, like the, the old adage it's like you know 85 percent of your tones in your hands like it's pretty much of what what's going to come out of you know i mean like you think of like who can i think of like uh like uh, the guitar player for uh rage against the machine plays like a 150 dollar guitar and plays fucking you know you know stadiums or whatever with this like cheap guitar that he just likes it's just something that spoke to him and was for him and and like yeah you can get like this like you know uh carbon fiber you know like reinforced all the things but it's not going to make your hands better you know what i mean you know and test of time i mean where's alembic they were they were a base company making really expensive stuff and everybody thought wow this has got to be good it's expensive well they're not yeah i don't see them anywhere so i still go through music magazines yeah i still go through music magazines and like we'll look at brands and stuff and be like well this one's 500 bucks more so it's got to be better right you know what i mean i still have that in my brain it's still like a something that's been like branded just, in me through yeah, marketing if, or something it's all the fucking commercials you were brought up on and fucking yeah you know all the mind tricks they've been playing on us on the t- the television yeah <laughs> well you know it's like with the electronics these companies have learned each other's tricks now so much that they're very competitive um close close to equal um, but what what it really comes down to in a good quality is I'm speaking specifically of guitar, bass guitar is um, the wood, the mm. wood quality, you know, and what makes the wood expensive is, you know, the export process or, you know, and, and the reason it would be imported from so far away is a very specific, you know, quality type of wood. And that kind of stuff does make a big difference. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Is it different yeah. for guitars and bass or like, nah. is there... No, bass, well, bass is bass. just a big guitar. It's called bass guitar. I mean, it's yeah, just, it's the same exact thing. You know, it's going to resonate good, more. The woods, like the woods make wood. more. What's well, a the good wood? Yeah. Oh, I, I mean, babinga or something. Babinga, koa, mahogany. Um, you know, wood that that kind of aficionados or, or gear nerds like to stay away from is like alder, ash. Mm. They're a little bit softer. Mm. Um. Which is funny because that base I just held up when I when I took it apart, I could see laminate layers. I think it's like a plywood body or something. <laughs> it's really, I mean, it's probably the cheapest of the cheap, but it's got, uh, you know, like I said, about the neck from Fender, and it's got Bartolini pickups, a badass bridge. So everything bolted to this crappy body is is quality. So maybe the combination mm-hmm. kind of gives it that unique, weird voice or something. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, Definitely, dude. So, so actually i have a, I have a specific question i've been actually uh wanted to insert it this is a perfect time the, the three string bass like where did that idea come from um obviously like you know um the string spacing is re- insane you know you have the you know basically just you're missing 
the string that you're missing, you spread it out and just made it like, how did you adjust to it? And what was the purpose <laughs> for like doing that? You know, what's crazy. Um, I made it by accident. I, I was hired by obituary in 2010. Terry was the bass player and he was still doubling up with six feet under and he had a schedule overlap and, and they knew, you know, and I've, I've been personal friends with obituary for years. We toured with them in 1990 and we've been maintained contact and been close with them. So when uh, Terry suggested to get me to fill in for him, it was pretty easy to do because of our, you know, our brotherhood, mm -hmm. our companionship, whatever. Um, so I go to Florida and I'm, crash course and we had we had a couple rehearsals i mean like a weekend maybe so i had time to kind of overview the songs but nowhere near to show ready and they dumped a set list of i don't know 22 24 songs on me and you know when you have that big mass of stuff to learn and you're not part of the whole band history like the riffs really blurred together for me. I was, you know, they can distinguish a certain song being like, oh, that's that's from back in, you know, 1989. We remember, oh, and this is a newer one. It goes like, you know, but to me, it was all just a big, huge pile. It was like 10,000 riffs from start to finish. Yep. <laughs> and it was in their, in their, their stuff, you know, obituary. It's like the ACDC of death metal. They're very simple. Mm -hmm. uh, it's good. It's, it's catchy because of that. I don't mean anything bad by it, but it's, it's so simple. It's hard um, because it's, it's, it's a, it kind of paints an atmosphere. It's not like this technical thing where all the notes play the story. It's a big song. It's by feel. And so, man, I was lost and I didn't think I could learn all these songs in time for the first show, which by the way, the first show was grass pop in Belgium. Very wow. huge show. Yeah. So I was getting nervous, man. And, and I was going over the set the night before in my hotel room in Belgium. And I had my iPod in and I'm, I'm trying my best to fucking anticipate the riff and remember how it goes. And it was frustrating. So I leaned the bass against the wall and I laid back on the bed and I'm thinking like, fuck, how am I supposed to do this, man? Yeah. <laughs> you know, I had a couple of days to prepare and, you know, come in like a hot shot, play with a million bands, supposed to, you know, supposed to happen. Well, it doesn't. It's hard work. And mm -hmm. learning an obituary set was was a lot harder than I thought. And and I thought, you know, I got this five-string bass, and it's got all these strings, and I don't need them. And it's confusing me. Looking at this bass, I don't need to think about moving on to the higher strings at all. They're not part of the song. Mm -hmm. And I thought, man, if I could just – just look at one string and just remember the movement on one string. I think I could get this because it, I always compare it. I don't know if anybody, if you're familiar with the Hawaiian alphabet, uh, Joseph is the studious one. Anthony, I feel like Anthony would be because he's. Uh, I just like one. to go there, dude. I don't know there. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, I think it's thir <laughs> just thirteen letters, right? Exactly. So our alphabet's twenty-six letters. Everything we're speaking about right now is formulated 26 digits in some form. Well, you know, like Joseph says, they got 13, their language, just as articulate as ours, less letters. So they got Akuna, Mana, Puta, 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 Pita, you know, mm -hmm. a lot mm -hmm. of very, very similar sounding things stacked together. And 
well, they get it. They understand each other. And I was, Mm -hmm. I thought, you know, that's what I need. I need a smaller alphabet to remember these, these riffs because they're, they're, it's not dream theater, man. It's a bitch for you. (laughs) (laughs) And so I started taking strings off the bass and I, I just wanted to look at what I needed only. And of course you take off too many strings and the wood pulls the strings too far. You lose your tension and it just lays on the wood farting out and there's no sound. And so then I put the second, put the A string back on there and eh, not good enough. Well, when I got the third one on there, I, I got my tension back and I could make some notes, but they were all in the right place. And then I had a big void on the other side of the neck with no strings and it looked fucking funny, but it helped me. Yeah. And I, I pulled it off and I learned it all that night. Didn't get much sleep before grass pop, but I learned it. But I, th- I was looking at the bass and I said, well, you know, it's a five string. And so I just, I put the low E a and the D just, you know, they don't have any big B string. So I just put the strings in one, three, five hole spread it out so it doesn't look so funny kind of max calavera style you know with yeah, all yeah. The strings. i was just about to mention him yeah 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 so i i went away from that and just strung the three uh pretty even spaced over the five holes and yeah yeah i was jamming in the hotel room man i got i had it and it all finally paid off and i was ready for the show and i thought maybe i should return the bass to normal you know and i started putting the strings on and i was like there they are again, all the distractions. And I said, fuck it. It's more important to play it right and have a, you know, worry about having a funny looking bass guitar. So I went back to the three string setup and sure enough, man, backstage, we're getting ready to go. And I opened the lid of the case and Trevor standing there warming up. He looks down and go, man, that thing looks like a damn trident. <laughs> <laughs> and I go, what do you think, man? He goes, man, that's badass. You're going to rock that thing. And I said, you know, that's, Kind of what it looks like. He goes, man, that's badass. And I was like, cool. Got my endorsement. I'm up there. Yeah. So oh, yeah. <laughs> it was out of necessity. And I, I pulled it off. Great show. And um, I played the rest of the tour like that, obviously. Why fuck with it? And um, eventually I learned that it was it was kind of fun to play. It was very different. And with the string spacing, you know, you're skipping. There's a missing string and you play. Yeah. It, it was cool. And once I brought it to... Uh, I, yeah, I played it in Testament. And, um, or maybe first, I think we were doing that death to all stuff. I think I was playing the older, I, I brought a six string bass to go with it so that I could have all those notes, but I brought the, the three string on the death to all tour and play the older songs a little bit, you know, less crazy riffs. And, and then it turned out to be a challenge. And I, I accidentally taught myself the higher part of the neck, you know, because you, you can't go, this way to play all that shit you got to go you got to find those notes down there yeah yeah and so i i it turned out to be a accidental learning experience but um but it was a challenge it it was you know except for the obituary thing out of necessity after that it was all pretty much a look at me look at me thing kind of you know a show-off deal but from my point of view it was it was pretty fun it was a different thing um and like I said, it was it was a challenge to pull that shit up, especially when I got in Testament and I'm playing playing their songs on a three string fretless. They were like, <laughs> "What the hell is that?" <laughs> and so, uh, uh, yeah, I, I I I rocked that thing for a while, but eventually the um, some of the wires broke off the preamp inside, and and it's still sitting like that. I haven't I haven't 
dug in and got aren't that. the stand-up strings kind of spaced out wider like that too though like did that make you feel like you were closer to upright when it was spaced out like that you know i never yeah. i never thought of that till now but that might have something to do with it because mm-hmm. i'm thinking of like the space between what i've seen upright bases look like and then thinking of what a five string spaced out like that would be it's kind of seems like it would be similar i don't know i think yeah i mean that's that might be a cool connection i never thought of it but that might be it you got a stand up in there too i think it's a three <laughs> oh damn that's it yeah see doesn't that look like it's more along the lines of that, that it's i mean that's that, those are, though, that's, that's some that's some spacing right there they don't have, they're not they're not that spaced but it's yeah. almost like the uh stick in a, in a wash tub old hillbilly kind of <laughs> yeah have you caught yourself like like in the middle of a song like when you're playing that thing just trying to hit a note like a string that isn't there you're like shit like because you're like so used to it like being there you're like oh shit there's nothing here <laughs> like, no because that's all there's there there's just yeah no the muscle uh, well, memory didn't fuck you over too bad with that. No, I mean you got to warm up to it. It's not. It's not for the. Uh, not for the faint at heart, but yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's still got the, the holes where the other. <laughs> That's. I put, sick, I put like a dude. piece of tape with black sharpie so that it looks dark inside. <laughs> <laughs> and the bridge took some damage too. You're just missing pieces. Just from Oh this, yeah. What a trip. String, you know, right. Oops. Away there. It's just missing the whole saddle and everything. Is that the only one that you have? Is it the only three string? <laughs> yeah. Fortunately. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, like I said, the, the preamp took some damage on the road and I haven't fixed it. So I, I, I can't play it until it goes into the pit crew, but, uh, It'd be cool to break it out again one day. It's, yeah, it's pretty man, fun totally. to play. It's a challenge. Yeah. yeah that's cool. I can't even out. imagine jumping into that. It's, it almost reminds me of, uh, like you said, Max Cavalera, but also what's uh, Keith Richards does the five-string guitar. You get, I think he, he just rips out the, the low string. I think he just does from A down. He doesn't like... Oh, okay. Yeah, he just does. But obviously, he's not like chunking at all. But, um, you know, it's, it's something different. You know, you see something different like and you're like, huh? it makes people's ears perk a little bit when they're like, what the, like, what's going on with that guy over there? Like, you know what I mean? Like it's something different and it's, and it's your own, it's your own thing. So that's definitely yeah, what makes that's, it cool. Yeah. That was the indulgent part of it. You know, like yeah. I said, it was an honest thing and to start with the birth of it was to survive and, uh, and do a good job. But, you know, I could have once in the obituary tour was very short and once it was over, I could have just abandoned it. But, but yeah, it was a, that almost makes it a cooler story that it was totally. wasn't it wasn't like I wanted to be different. It's like, oh shit, I have to survive. You know what I mean? That makes it a way sicker story than like I want to be, you know, I want to stand out. That it's was like, no, actually to- like our most repeated question. I think we got that like two or three times was what's up with the three string bass. And, oh shit, I didn't even read the comments. And, yeah. And oh, I had so it locked that's and cool though, because it's like now you guys got the story and it's a fucking cool story, you know? Yeah. I'd- yeah. <laughs> the entire thing. And um yeah, if it wasn't for the preamp breaking, I don't know, I could have pushed it farther and farther into the testament thing because um, it got a lot of comments. And 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 like Joel said, I mean, it's you know, when I was young, I, I was never, I never had the mindset about this. I, there was a couple guys in school that were really like competitive, you know, and, and musicians. Some of them are like, I'm going to be the best, or he's the best, and that word best never resonated with me. I didn't care who was the best. I, I definitely. Mm-hmm 
definitely knew I would never be the best. There's no point in that because Mm -hmm. everybody has a different best. But the one thing I knew I could do is be different, you know, be Mm -hmm. something original in a huge ocean of unoriginality. And, you know, that's been something I've always leaned to is to, to be different, be myself as much as myself could be. And um, so everything like switching to fretless so early on in the game and, and, and my style and, and everything and, and the three string fits in that category, it's, it's all a big, you know, attempt of, of sticking out and, and being, yeah, you know, an attempt to be original. And so, yeah, you nailed it. I mean, it's, it was a cool thing. And um, we did a whole tour in Europe with Exodus one year. And on that tour, every night I was playing Souls of Black on that three string. And, wow. um, and I was pulling it off. Um, and then we went and we did a quick trip to, we played a big festival in Japan and then a quick stop in Honolulu. And, and because it was a quick trip, the serious level level was down a little bit. And uh, I got a little bit, uh, to an advanced state of adult refreshment before the show and kind of kind of chunk the uh, the souls of black intro on the three string and um yeah i didn't like that shit on youtube so uh yeah i had to i had to you know get serious and try to report it or just report it and until they re- remove it or something oh you could do that I don't know. Yeah, I don't know if they'll remove it. That was about six years ago, but man, I'd still feel good if that shit was erased. <laughs> isn't, that, isn't that crazy though, with the, your massive body of work and and how sick you are as a musician? Um, there's still this those one little tidbit, those little tiny fucking things that happen. Just bother you? Know, you. This one show happened. This yeah. one song we fucked up that one time. You know, we get those. Are, those are the things that like haunt you. I mean, I, I have a question for you. I mean, I still have these like kind of reoccurring dreams where um you know like i'm it's we're playing a big state like a huge show festival show and all of a sudden i'm in this band that's it's like part like anthony it'll be anthony and casey or something in there and then we'll we'll uh we'll basically like I, i'm like we'll I have to learn the songs and it's like the same day of the the show you know i have this like constant it happens to me all the time and then i can't all of a sudden i can't find my gear i can't find my bass i can't find what's going on and just like have this like it's just nightmare after nightmare. And then I get on stage and then it's deicide. I'm on stage with, and I'm like, I've never practiced these songs. I don't know what's going on. You know what I mean? It's like, <laughs> it's like the ultimate, like because of those nightmares on stage and those, those, you know, things that I've had happen to me on stage of, you know, once it happens, you're like, never again. I'm, I'm always going to double prepare for this to not happen after like, you know, something embarrassing. I think I've happens. said this when you've said this in previous episodes and I yeah. think it's the, it's, the adult musicians version of the showing up to school naked yeah yeah <laughs> you totally. know totally it, it, it's just a new version of that same dream that happened to us as a kid but the responsibilities we has had as a kid was just to go to school now it's going to work and going to, and, and if we're in a band we fucking we're doing shows and all this kind of shit and then it just so happens that like the most passionate thing we're about it's our dreams are gonna our nightmares are gonna fuck with us about the most passionate things and it's showing up to a show with not being prepared aka you're in your underwear yeah yeah my underwear would be awesome i mean compared to the, <laughs> these dreams like these dreams are like like Speedo. when ben's looking back at me or like someone's looking or someone's looking back at me and going, what the fuck are you? you know what i mean i'm just like i don't know what to do i have a three-string bass all of a sudden i'm like what the fuck I don't know. but, you got, but you got south park boxers on so you're chill dude <laughs> yeah 
yeah, yeah. I think it all comes from that. But anyways, all right, so a- we're super in the weeds now. I want to get yeah. back to the timeline a little bit. So yeah. okay. back to um, I want. I, let's just touch on it a little bit. Like Chuck was living in the in the bay with you guys for a little bit, basically. Like I want to know what was going on with Chuck when he was hanging out in California. Yeah, um, I guess the story goes he kind of dropped out of high school and moved to California to to get a better lineup. He he had the Mantis thing going, you know, those early Mantis demos, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. and he ended up not with Cam, but he ended up rehooking up with Rick, and but you know he he was always looking for something better. Even even super young Chuck knew that there was better out there, so he uprooted and came to the Bay Area because that's you know, way before Florida had a scene or anything there, yeah, yeah. it was already on the second wave of of new bands in the underground. And so Chuck came out here to find his find his lineup. And and I don't remember the name specifically, but he went through a couple failed attempts to get it. Um, eventually found a high school kid, Chris Reifert, you know, the drummer on on Screen Bloody Gore, and mm-hmm. um, stayed with him and conquered. And, um, shoot, I don't know the range of the radio station. Do you remember KVHS? It sounds familiar. Yeah. It's probably small antenna. Um, it, it's exactly like college radio station, except for it was high school. It was wow. Clayton Valley high school, KVHS, even though Clayton starts with a C, but you know, the call letters. <laughs> and so, um, Sadis demo, we were, uh, I don't remember. They had, if it was Monday night or Thursday night, whatever, they had like a late night, underground thrash death metal maybe a demo dj or something that would play the unknown raw stuff and and they were playing this the the demo sadist made in 86 the dtp demo they were playing that on the show and so chuck and chris are hanging out in Concord. they hear it and they go get the demo and on the on the demo cassette label darren put his phone number you know in case somebody wanted to book a show or something and um and they just they called the phone number one day, right? It was perfect timing because we had just come out of the practice room, sat down on the couch in the living room, light up a joint, and Darren comes out of the room. He said, hey, man, that was a weird call. Well, who was it? Oh, it's, it's these two guys. They said they're in a band in Concord named Death. Of course, we all started laughing. Who would call the band Death? And uh, <laughs> and they said they, they heard our demo, and they really like it, and they want to just fucking hang out. We're like, all right, let's go see what this is about. So – we we went out to their went out to Chris's house and it was just it was amazing because we were, say this was a four piece all four of us went and it was just two guys and we went in the bedroom where they were practicing and had a huge white Tama drum set and two amps up against the other wall and one amp was connected to the guitar and one amp was connected to a, a mic on a stand and and so they just said well let's we're gonna jam our shit for you and they, and fuck we <laughs> it definitely didn't sound like two guys man it was crazy <laughs> wow. and um they had just got out of the studio like they're they just made the mutilation demo mm-hmm. which is yeah joseph is the the knowledge one down there he, <laughs> see, they acknowledge all these little his, his that's why we call him the t- professor dude his nickname yeah. is the professor well, i mean one. i've i've watched the the documentary so i know this part of the story ah, okay so. Yeah. So anyway, if, if anyone knows the specific time mutilation demo, that's exactly when we met Chuck and Chris. And um, 
And it was amazing to watch because even though Darren was a super screamer for Sadis, we never saw anyone do that low guttural, you know. Uh, mm-hmm. And Chuck doing that just, I mean, dude, um, uh, just a shitty mic and a chord into some PV bass amp or whatever the hell he had. And it, you know, it's it was incredible. These guys were, these two guys were so powerful. Hell yeah. And, and we just hit it off. Um, we we started hooking up with them and you know get a get a case of low and brow or or Mickey's big mouth or something we'd go Mickey's big mouth yeah dude. go down to the river and just I mean we were you know I don't know seventeen years old or something like that sixteen wow. seventeen and and we were just hanging out just you know like I said before in in a in a scene that's full of you know violence forbidden exodus pest you know possessed bands like this you know we we were very different you know and you know and there was a lot of plans being made and we had big aspirations for this heavy music well what we ended up doing and you know we've already covered why chuck is in california but i'm i'm, I'm doing my normal long-winded version no, um, we want it we want it all <laughs> they didn't they were practicing in chris bedroom and they could only practice there when his parents were gone so they were kind of limited on how when they could jam but sadis we had we practiced at darren's dad's house and darren's dad not only was he gone most of the time but when he was there he was cool with us making noise so we had we had a nice setup in the house so we had those guys move out to our room and the deal was you know they had free use of the room but we couldn't have two drum kits and Chris was totally cool with Sadist drummer John playing on this huge Tama kit. His parents bought him. So it was, you know, our drummers in heaven playing this huge kit. Like, <laughs> Oh man, I, I wish I had this. And of course the two guys are just blown away that they could just, you know, play for hours with no one telling them to stop. And then there was a pool out back and we would do flips off the diamond board and just get loaded. And it, it was a cool oh, hang. And, and, and the and you know switching off from four piece sadist jamming and having two guys sit over there and watch us and then we switch and then the two guys would set up and then all four sadist guys would sit along the wall and watch them and you know the missing piece for death was a bass player and I I became this common denominator and so when we'd have these these back to back practices sadist and death in the same room I just when sadist would finish I would just down tune the bass and just join in with the death guys and just, just to help fill out the sound. And mm-hmm. it was just, it was there and it was cool. And, and I, it, once I get one of those adapters to convert cassette to MP3, I have a rehearsal tape of me jamming these songs back then. I want to really get Jesus. that out. Oh, it's I pretty fun. That, dude. Yeah, I mean, Chuck singing and everything. I mean, it's brutal mm-hmm. and we're jamming yeah. like this and we're, and we're, we're getting pretty, happy with the situation we're like man we could do shows like this. i was cool with doing two sets and i you know i like the workload obviously now we know my career i i fucking workaholic but totally it was uh it was fun and we were like let's do shows let's let's so you know obviously on loan from sadis but i was integrating into the lineup then um as a borrowed guy of course but I mean, we were kind of like one band in two halves eventually. And one night we did our normal thing where we went out and spotted some booze. Some guy bought us a couple of cases. We went down to some park and we're just sitting there drinking. And uh, I think Chuck, 
says like, oh, we guys, you know, we, we've got something to say. So we're going to be gone for like a week or two. So, you know, we won't hang out. You guys won't see us or nothing. And we're like, all right, that's cool. Thanks for telling us. I don't know what's <laughs> up. They're like, oh, no, no, don't worry. We're just we're going to Los Angeles, you know, but we'll be back. Okay, whatever. So they take off and uh, whatever week or two weeks go by and we get back into our routine, start practicing again and go out drinking one night or say, Hey, so what's up? What'd you guys go to LA for? I mean, mm -hmm. you know, we're, we're fucking 17 years old. And why, why did you, did you go to Disneyland or something? I mean, what the, <laughs> I mean, you could tell us, man, it's cool. You know, Oh, Chuck's like, Oh dude, we went and, uh, you know, combat, we signed a contract with combat records and they gave us a budget and we recorded, we recorded the album all the songs we've been practicing, we went and recorded them. I'm like, okay, well, who did the bass? You know, I was sitting there, I was their kind of steady bass player at this point. Who did the bass? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I was like, oh, fuck, I had to, man. It sucked. I had to do all my guitar, I had to do my solos, I had to sing everything and do bass. And it, it's just, I had so much to do, man. It sucked. And I'm like, oh, shit, I know all the songs. I would have did it. Fuck it, he hits Chris Ryan like bam. Fuck, I told you he would have, and I was like, oh, that close uh, to being on screen, bloody gore. <laughs> damn, God damn it, dude. They uh, were just, it was just that kind of shy insecurity to ask. Yeah, yeah. It was just, just kids, and and they just they didn't want to assume or or impose. You know, like the rehearsal thing was a cool setup, but they they were I was sadist bass player, and they were just like. Let's just take care of uh, that. So it was that like a respecting to the sadist guys, you know? Kind of, yeah. Or more just like uh, didn't want to get in that uncomfortable thing of like, hey, can we borrow him in the studio or something? It, was and, that like less of a thing back then? Like, because bands nowadays are so, I use the word incestuous, like trading. Oh, no, yeah. All, yeah. You know, it's like that's a common thing now. Like, yeah. so what maybe it just wasn't that then? Like, you're kind of no. just. And, and, you know, when you're a teenager, you're, I mean, you, you pretty much plan on being dead by 30. You plan, pretty much plan on having gold records by 25. You know, you have this whole plan in your head of what's going to go on. So, you know, the options are, are limited and the ability to improvise isn't, you know, it's, it's an immature mind. And so it's just, mm -hmm. it was just that, that, that young feeling, you know, like they just, they just didn't ask. Yeah. And, uh, and I, I came wow. that close, that fucking Shit, close. Dude. I know, because then we went, we returned to the cycle. We started re double rehearsing and we started booking shows and I, I was back in the spot. And it's just, I just didn't they do it. Did, did he do a demo as well before they recorded the Scream Bloody Gore in LA? Wasn't there another demo that he might have done out here too? Or is that the cassette so. that you're talking about right now? I don't. I think it was mutilation demo, which okay. I think those songs are on. Okay, so I'm 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 sorry. I'm that's I'm pretty that sure. Was, no, because they, stuff, they right? told us about that studio where they recorded mutilation demo was in Lafayette, and they told okay. us about that studio. Okay. And um, um, after we did our first demo, Sadus, I'm talking about. Um, we didn't get a lot of decent bites for a record co uh, contract offer or anything, so. We wanted to update our sound after about a year and we went and followed death's 
recommendation went to that studio in Lafayette. And so the second Sadist demo, um, I think we called it a uh, certain death demo, two songs only, but we recorded there where mutilation was done about two years after. So, yeah. So you guys mm-hmm. did that demo and then where do you, where does Sadist sign a contract with somebody? Jeez, dude, not till way later, because even after that second demo, we didn't get, and, and we were getting, we were getting offers, but they were like, you know, we had this projection in our head of what we needed and what we thought we deserved. And, you know, some of the smaller upstart companies were getting a hold of us with just really low basic offers. And we were just like, you know, what was it? New Renaissance records and, and, you know, these, these, these weird indie things. So we, we were getting attention, but it wasn't, you know, up to where we thought. Mm-hmm. And then of course, combat and, Roadrunner and 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 Peaceville and uh, God I can't remember but all these companies that we wanted to gravitate towards they they weren't really interested in a big in a big deal with us they they couldn't they couldn't pigeonhole us we we mm-hmm. weren't like Testament and Violence and Exodus and we weren't like Morbid Angel and Deicide and Morgoth and Pestilence yeah. we were like this weird hybrid of shit and they didn't know where to put us. Mm-hmm. And so because of that, we didn't get the offers we were looking for. And so we just decided to finance our own thing. It's like, cause we were up against it. We we're like, okay, now, you know, we did the first demo in 86. We did the second demo in 87. We're coming up in 88 and we, we wanted to update our sound. And we were just like, man, we're not doing three demos, you know? Um, let's just turn that idea of going into the studio into the, the premier album, you know, the, mm-hmm, the freaking mm-hmm. let's do it for real and just finance it. You know, for, we just, we did all kinds of weird things. We actually, my mom worked at a, she didn't work in the hospital, but she worked in the supply division for this hospital that, that offered these, these uh, visual, uh, what do you call You know, we were like Guinea pigs. We would go in and we got 125 bucks each to go do these tests with headphones and look at a screen and do weird. And sure. we were just doing all kinds of weird shit. And um, we just, just built up the money and, and financed our own thing. And we went and um, we followed in Hex's footsteps. We went to a studio in Richmond and used a guy named John Marshall, who went on to play guitar for a brief time in metal church, but, when we had met him, um, he was Kirk Hammett's guitar tech from Metallica, oh, but wow. he was dabbling in the engineering stuff and Hex was friends with him. And, and that was John Marshall's first venture behind a desk, manning the whole thing for an album production was uh, one of Hex's records. And so we just went, boom, same combo. Let's go to the same studio with John Marshall and, and because he was new, the prices were low and, and, and we were able to just do the whole thing. We recorded and mixed with John. And, and um, like I said earlier, we, the album cover was just basically a glorified kegger party flyer that we put some kind of logo around and, and we just pieced it together ourselves. And we found a vinyl replication company for cheap. And we, it was just, it was just like a big demo, you know, but it was vinyl. Yeah. And we just did it ourselves and we actually applied for our own business license. We became Sadist Records because, you know, selling demo tapes with a $5 bill in the envelope is easy. But when you put out an album, you know, people start writing checks out to Sadist and you can't 
you can't cash those at the bank. So we had to right. get our, we had to get Sadis incorporated. And, uh-huh. and so we could cast checks made out to Sadis. So <laughs> we became Sadis records and we put out our own record and we, the first batch was 2,500 and we Damn. sold those and we had enough money. And then after that, every batch was an even 2000. And I think we're on our like fifth pressing and we went to uh, Testament lawyers. They were like entertainment lawyers. And we brought in a giant duffel bag of fan mail and, and album orders and just stuffed this huge canvas army surplus bag, of just fan interest as every stuffed it full. And we just presented our case. We're like, look, we've sold, you know, like 8,000 copies of our own vinyl on our own cutting cardboard and duct tape. Jesus. And writing addresses, sending them all around the world. We, we were like a little production unit after we had band practice. We'd sit in there and just do album orders and send them out. And we had a huge bag. And we're like, look, the people like us. We're not delusional. You know, we have fans. We have we have a growing here, but the companies aren't looking at us. And um, that's when Roadrunner noticed. And they stepped up and they said, okay, these guys are, they do have a following and they're very motivated. So they offered us a contract that we liked. And um we signed it, and the first album we did for them was uh, Swallowed in Black in 1990. And immediately after that, they bought up our first album and um, released it under their label under our cassette version title, which was Chemical Exposure, which is a, mm-hmm. kind of a weird clusterfuck situation with them. But uh, So our first album came out second with Roadrunner. Well, yeah, dude, that's wild, right? Yeah. So well, as, we were- as a... Like, I actually had a question, like, as far as like you being like saying, like, fuck it, the labels aren't paying attention to us. We have to self-finance this and like start from gra- grassroots in the 80s. Does that just mean you're going to sell them at shows and you're going to you're going to tape trade? Is that the two things that those mean? Is that what that means? OK, totally. Definitely. We every time we went to watch somebody play, no matter who was coming through, you know, if it was just a big local show or if a national. I mean, we we were all stacked with vinyl. And we would walk in a show. We'd stick them up the back of our jacket, so we'd look like idiots walking through security. And we would <laughs> we would network. We would we would sell them for a beer. We'd sell them for a joint. We'd trade them for someone else's tape. We'd give them out for favors. I mean, they were like business cards, huge twelve by twelve fucking vinyls were yeah, going around yeah. the venue. And we were just we were pre- we were pushing it, man. We were we were all salesmen, and and we just we had to get the word out. And that and that album was our. You know, it was, yeah, it was our business card, and and that, that finally got us a big contract with Roadrunner. They signed us for uh, I don't remember. It was a multi-album deal, which mm-hmm. we didn't fulfill, but uh, yeah, shit so, happens. Uh, but they gave us, you know, we we got a huge budget for our first record with them. We went to Fantasy Records in Berkeley. It was like this beautiful high-rise studio. They do movie soundtracks there, and. You know, Testament had done um, uh, Souls of Black. They did it there with uh, Michael Rosen, I think was the assistant engineer to Alex Perialis. Or I might be mixing names. Don't hold me to that. But but the point is, is is Testament had been in Fantasy Records working with Michael Rosen. And so we went right in there. Um, Darren turned out to be the big Testament fan in the band and said, you know, their success is working. Testament had an MTV video. They were on FM radio. So they were doing pretty good at the time. And, and you know, we wanted to hit those, hit that combination. And 
we spent a lot of money. That was a very, very expensive studio and we blew our budget in there, but, uh, but it was fun. We felt like, uh, yeah, from being self-financed from doing visual research to earn the money to, to kicking back in fantasy records, looking at, you know, crazy pictures on the wall and gold records of crazy. I just love the drive of you guys showing up with all your fan mail and shit and just being like, what's up, dude? Like, this is what's going on on our end. Like you want a piece of this. This is where it's at right here. Well, I mean, you could, you could brag and boast about who likes you, but you know, when we unzipped it and poured it out with, with visual effect in front of these (laughs) entertainment, we're like letting it just fall out and we're like, pick up any piece you want and read it. And this is legit, you know, it was visual proof. We're like, dude, we're, we're not making this shit up. Like we, Mm -hmm. we have thousands of fans, you know, and I think the potential was there and we were worth the risk, you know, and when we were showing them like, this is our daily thing, man. We're, we're like a, we're like a mini post office in there every day, sending shit out. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how many other bands were doing that, but we felt like we deserve to be up at least with the pack, you know? Yeah. It's like a, a bunch of people were doing the tape trading, but you guys like went a step forward and actually got your shit pressed and fucking released your shit properly. Yeah. And because of that, we did every fucking micro millimeter of it our way, you know? Mm-hmm. And and mm-hmm. so we had set ourselves you know, we became experienced, you know, we knew what was up. We knew about vinyl pressing. We knew art work and we, we knew that shit. So when Roadrunner signed us, man, we annoyed the shit out of him because we were involved in every step. You knew what happened in the back. In the back yeah. They're expecting to, to sign some like band that doesn't know what they're talking about. Like, yeah, whatever, just sign this thing and just shut up and fucking, mm-hmm. we'll, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, we'll take the money. We'll just hit them with some fucking legal <laughs> jargon, then they'll be confused <laughs> yeah. and they won't pay attention. Well, they did that too. They, they yeah, did. yeah, yeah. We signed, we were deal. back, we were back in the batch of the bands that send the bad contracts, the ones where they cross collateralize um, the record advancement, the recording advancement against your royalties, but then they, they combine the merchandise, which is all inclusive. It was called Blue Grape back then, if you remember Roadrunner. Oh, I remember. Yep, yep. Yeah, I remember, I remember that. Grape. It was a mail order. So shit. they yep. masterminded, like, oh, we will do your T-shirts too, and mm. that the sales of that is paying uh, back the album budget. And then, like, oh, you, we got these great tour offers for you. And we're like, fuck yeah, man, this is royalty. Here's your here's your advance. We're paying for your bus and your plane tickets and your equipment rental and everything. Like, Oh man, we're styling. Well, that's cross collateralizing and every album that we're selling drop by drop is paying that debt. So is that like a three, just never get deal? out of is debt. Is that what they're called? Or a three, is that what? a 360 deal. Is that something where they get a Probably. piece of everything? Probably. Uh, I never heard that term, but it makes sense. Yeah, that's like more of the. That's like a newer style of what he's talking about. That's like a what you know. They just other get a bands piece of everything. Well, it's like a yeah, yeah. It's definitely like well, the the younger bands, like a Metal Blade, will sign a band and be like, "We'll give you a three sixty deal." But it's like basically a shitty deal. But it's like mm-hmm. you know, if you do well, the first album, you know, they sign you for like a six album deal, something crazy. But and, they'll uh, make you perform. We get a cut. You sell yeah, yeah. You get a cut and all that. Yeah, yeah. It's like we'll 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 put our logo on your guys' CDs and put it everywhere. But like, I mean, we you get like you know five bucks a week. <laughs> you know, like at best. You know what I mean? It's like 
Guys like us are just wanting the distribution, dude. I, don't, I you know, you, we just, just want the headache of the doing fact all that. that people, yeah. The fact that people want to give us money to make our art and then put it out for us. That's all I care about. I but as a kid, as, as you know, like we're talking about like in Steve's like age when he's like doing this shit, like we were. Yeah, this is Steve's career we're talking about. I'm I mean, this, like, is, oh, dude, this is fucking, like I align no, no, cars no, no, all day no, and I fucking not, growl on. No, no, I'm talking about like, like his young hunger when, you know, like they're all they had. We all had that kind of hunger with us, too, like. Whatever, dude. All you know, I've dumpstered, you know, eight of dumpsters to fucking survive and fucking tour life. You know what I mean? It's like things I would never dream of doing nowadays. Like back then, it's just like, whatever, dude, fucking gotta do it. Like, it's just what we gotta do. Like, don't be, you're gonna be a bitch, you're gonna do it. You know what I mean? It's like basically oh, turned into one of those things. Step up to the plate or get the fuck out. But exactly. dude, he, what Steve's talking about is he's at, actually at a time where you could make some fucking money being an underground technical thrash death band, you know? Yeah, and we watched it happen. You know, there was a big batch of us, like us, Malevolent Creation, you know, Exhorter. There was a there was a lot of us that were just kind of cataloged and forgotten about, you know, mm-hmm. because we we weren't really keeping up with Deicide, Sepultura, um, and so on. You know, mm-hmm. we weren't we that shit was hitting big, you know, and even right off the bat, you know, I was already the guest bass player for human album by death. And they were, they were pumping that, you know, and, you know, death, you know, at one point I was doing press for, um, for uh, vision of misery in 92. I think I was in yeah. New York in the office doing interviews all day. And someone had said, Hey, you know, only U.S. sales, not worldwide, but U.S. sales. I think Slayer was at five hundred thousand, um, Sepultura was at three hundred thousand, and and Death was like two ninety or something like that. Like that was the peak of the underground, you know. Mm-hmm. And and they were telling me, and they knew that I had performed on the on that album of Human, and it was it was great news because those numbers were huge in those days, you know, and. For, for underground bands that are selling 8,000, 12,000, you know, you hit 20, you're pretty good. You get up to 80. Oh my God. You're probably, you know, you got your own crew by then. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, someone like death, that's up in two, 300,000, you know, Sepultura was crushing it. And then the ceiling was Slayer at that point. And, you know, they were trying to push that, but, you know, say this was a real niche kind of thing. Um, if we could get, all our fans in the world in one area, we'd be huge. But the problem is they're just spread thin. Spread apart. So yeah. Sadis has had very, very loyal following, um, incredible fans and support. It's just, it never hit hard. Like, like those bands, you know, like, like obituary. And then, yeah, like I said, like the aside and everything. Um, it, but just, it, hit, it wasn't it there. It hit hard enough for a guy like me to you dig enough, you're gonna find it, and you're gonna realize that this is one of those gems that most people should know about from that area era. Because like a vision of misery was my first introduction to you guys, and and hearing that, like to be honest, I'm gonna be totally fucking honest. I had no idea about Sadis. I thought you guys were from Florida because of like the sound it almost like had a Scott Burns sound, even though you guys didn't record that with Scott Burns, correct? You guys were over here. Yeah. 
it, but it, it, it still kind of like felt like what was going on over in Florida at the time, you know, but either way, like listening to Sadist now, it, many a times after that, I realized like Sadist does have a very unique uh, contribution to what was going on in the, the flourishing and blossoming of, of subgenres of metal at that time, you know, and, and the crossover with Chuck and autopsy and all this shit, like, ah, dude, I, I'm overwhelmed right now, but what I wanted to get back to was um, you mentioned human. I want, so you were, you had the almost with scream bloody gore and then you get the redemption with humans. So how does that come about? Well, I mean, from the time that we met the death guys, you know, when they call our phone number off the demo cassette all the way up until Chuck moved back to Florida after the release of Scream Bloody Gore, we had done a lot of hanging out. We were, we were total friends. I mean, the sadist crew, the death guys, we were like one group. Mm -hmm. He felt just as comfortable with me as he did the whole sadist band. Awesome. I was just the one, the one thing I had was I was the guy that jammed in his lineup, but You've I mean, he that, was buddies with all that void that yeah, he had in his common yeah. denominator. Yeah, but, yeah. um, yeah. And then he moves back to Florida and he had offered, he told Chris, he could stay in the lineup, but he needed to come to Florida and Chris needed to finish high school. And I, it, and, you know, think about a 17 year old, like, Oh, am I going to uproot and go, you know, Chris just, he just, it was a brutal decision for a That's kid. That's a big move, yeah. Yeah, and so he just said he didn't want to do it, especially the way Chuck went about it. He, he just said he was flying home for his birthday and he was coming back in a week. And then after avoiding 900 phone calls, I think it was after about a month or two, he finally answered. And it was just like, oh, yeah, well, I'm staying. We're like, whoa, whoa. <laughs> you know? Well, that kind of goes back to you, like, talking about how he just was kind of shy and yeah. didn't really voice himself at certain times. Yeah, totally. Falls so, yeah, he didn't, he didn't let on that he wasn't coming back. So we just – we thought he was coming back in a week, like you said, and he just didn't. And, and he didn't try to bail on Chris. You know, he, he told him – he was his drummer and he wanted him there. And there was some point earlier on where they both had spent some time in Florida. So Chris had been there actually at a very young age and he kind of pictured it. And he was just like, uh, you know, it just wasn't his thing. And he just, so they just kind of went their own way. And, um, and we just kind of lost touch, you know, mm -hmm. um, and he kicks out leprosy and we listened to it and it was, it was hit or miss. Um, I think the, the biggest detractor from us really geeking out on it was the production. It wasn't, I mean, Chuck sounded good. He was, he was belting out vocals and you know, the riffs were cool and everything is, it was, it was a, it was definitely a, an evolution from mm -hmm. scream bloody gore. We could hear he had a shit down, but the production was weird. Um, you know, it was maybe too polished or so we were still kind of raw cavemen underground kind of guys. And yeah. it, we didn't really vibe with leprosy. So we just kind of drifted away. Um, it was just a memory. And with Chris, just all of a sudden just sliced out of his path. He just, you know, all of a sudden it's like, he's just a lone man hanging out with Satis. And there's now there's no rehearsal split going on. And, I introduced him to two of my buddies I had gone to school with for years. They were both named Eric. 
Eric and Eric were buddies and they seemed, I, I thought maybe he could find some kind of camaraderie in these guys. Cause they were very similar. They just, they buy both like heavy metal. They both smoke hell weed and they were into like gore movies and all that stuff that Chris liked. And I just, I just needed to make, I needed to be this kind of matchmaker. Matchmaker. Yeah. Yeah. To be just help poor Chris. He just lost his buddy and he's all of a sudden he's got no band and it's just poor guy just hanging out by himself. And, and so uh, he introduced him to Eric and Eric and immediately that's how they formed autopsy. Cause one Eric played guitar, one Eric played bass. Boom. Boom. Chris on drums and Chris decided to do vocals. So they were a three piece in their first demo. I don't know the name of it, but uh, the first demo was just Eric, Eric and Chris. And, and I just uh, give mad, mad respect to drummers who do vocals while they're drumming. It's like, yeah, you guys got to fucking breathe. Like, it's like a workout for you guys plus vocals it's like it doesn't make sense like doing the treadmill and trying to fucking sing a yeah, song at the like same keeping time keeping your cardio up you got to keep your cardio <laughs> way up if you're gonna do something like that yeah well who's the drummer because i noticed earlier joel mentioned he's a bass player and anthony you're the singer so yep casey howard drummer? right here oh <laughs> yeah. typical drummer keeping quiet the whole time you're like ringo star yeah. over there just keeping quiet yeah. the whole time sorry <laughs> sorry for interrupting so he's, much guys. he's <laughs> chilling in his octopus garden uh, dude. yeah <laughs> what once you release me you'll regret it dude so i was i was <laughs> talking up a storm me. last episode and sometimes i'm in, i'm hiding in my little cave i'm like an octopus when i come out yeah you're like a little <laughs> just a ball of rage waiting to explode yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly he takes it out on the drums and then he's just after he plays drums he's like just mellow oh, dude like, you don't right. even know that like the text messages i've been getting like what the fuck you have steve DiGiorgio coming on the podcast like i'm just like yeah dude i know it's insane like you know it's like, it's so, <laughs> it is so, insane it's it pretty crazy they're just like they don't they're like you can't comprehend it they're like you know what's awesome is like every time i hear like oh steve DiGiorgio is playing bass on an album I'm like oh fuck yeah it's gonna be good you know what I mean? Like, I don't even know. Like, it'll be like, uh, you know, like, well, actually, one of my favorites, like, random off of everything that you've done is uh, Quo Vadis. I was going to do. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, mean, I was just waiting know. for it. I love it. I love it. I was it. waiting for it. Yeah, yeah, I was waiting. Dude, um, you don't understand how many times we've listened to that album. You don't. Yeah. Yeah. It, yeah, was, yeah. it was pumped frequently at the Furniture yeah. Down. Yeah. How did you hook up with those guys? Like, I mean, obviously, they're over, over in Montreal, right? This, well, how did you, like, connect with those guys? That's time warp to that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah just answered the phone I had really no clue who they were or anything about them. they just called me and went hey we like we like the two death albums you played on uh we'll pay you money and come do that shit in our band yeah <laughs> okay so but, like bart, uh, bart or whatever yeah yeah bart yeah bart and yannick and yeah. um yeah it was really weird and um that story is really trippy because when we coordinated the re the recording it out so they sent me they sent me a batch of their songs like here it is you know you can start absorbing it and stuff but i i had a big testament tour to do and i i listened to it a little bit i put it on and i could hear the craziness of it but mm -hmm. there was no way you know i'm not gene hoagland i can't just learn shit that way i need visual and i knew it was crazy and so i just said well when i get to it i get to it and the plan was to help save the money is on the way back from Europe, I'd stop in Montreal and do the, do the session and then go home. Well, the la I have never done that again. The last thing you want to do is 
cram course in a studio after a fucking tour. That was, I oh, showed up with bronchitis. Burnt. Yeah. I, I was sick as fuck. I was tired. Didn't never met the guys. And it was way over my head. It was super overwhelming. I was, yeah, no gas in the tank trying to learn their fucking Canadian algebra, man. Not <laughs> you're like, I'm used to that Hawaiian alphabet, dude. Yeah. Yeah. There's too many. <laughs> Actually. This, yeah. yeah exactly, well, yeah. that's yeah. This is years <laughs> before the obituary thing, but uh, yeah. What year is it? I think 2003, maybe something like that. Yeah. Yeah. I had, so, I had no um, idea that was you on that album until just now. And that and then you my mind. listen to it again. Oh, yeah. And then you're going to realize, yes, that is very much. I thought it was, I just know there's a bunch of Canadian like fretless bass gods. I was like, oh, it's one of those guys. That was for, in, it was like, Forrest. Forrest did the like the Forrest filled in for me because that was just studio yeah. session before they picked up Forrest to do live stuff. And then all those guys that you're talking about, yeah, like Hugo and um, yep. yeah, yeah. So yeah, I spawned them all. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because they all did <laughs> yeah, actually. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But uh, when you hear that, just remember, I'm 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 running on E on bronchitis on that fucking album, dude. It was brutal. I would like me and Bart would work on the stuff in his apartment and and I would just put my disc man and just play until, and I just pass out on this futon. (laughs) And then he would just like open the door. Like, Hey, you want some breakfast? I'm like, breakfast. What the fuck? I'm like, where the fuck am I? (laughs) I just put put it back in and just like, "Ah, I don't know it. I don't know it. I don't know it. And And I was struggling, man. I, I, you know, honestly, I'll tell you, I don't think I really have mentioned this in any interviews. Fortunately, it's ancient history and it has a good ending. But that was the first time I called home and said, I think I'm going to bail. I I am not cutting it. I, there's no way I can pull this off. And I was I mean, you're, I was sick, man. I didn't have. Yeah. You know, totally, totally. And fresh and, off a tour, too, of another band. You're just like, fuck, dude, like so burnt. And and they and Bart was cracking the whip, man. I mean, because because they were paying me money, he was getting his fucking pennies worth out of me, man. And and I just felt like the vibe wasn't happening. It just mm. and my wife just goes, "Oh, that's too bad. Have you ever quit anything before?" And I go, "No." She goes, "Well, you're not now. Mm, Get to work." Oh, and I was like, "There she is. That's why <laughs> yeah, she's yeah, alive, yeah. bro." Yeah, yeah. And so I just I just kept working hard and, and it got better and better because we went two, three hours north in Quebec up to this cabin. I wish I have this picture hanging on my wall of this of this studio. It's a fucking cabin with a deck over this lake surrounded in pine forest, just north I mean, bear, wolverine, and a couple, you know, French trappers running around up there. I mean, it's fucking wilderness. In fact, when yeah. it freezes over in the winter, you don't take the road to the studio. You take the road to the other side of the lake and snowmobile across with your gear. I mean, this thing's remote. <laughs> and the guy who runs it is is Pierre, the guitar player from Oblivion, which is a huge part of my history. Became friends with Oblivion guys early, early on, you know, mid eighties, whatever, or wow. you know, whatever, eighty, okay, late eighties, whatever. But you know. So Pierre is a friendly face. Like I'm with Bart the whole time. I don't know this guy and he's cracking the whip and I'm sick and it's, I'm struggling and all of a sudden Pierre appears and it was just like, ah, oh, familiar face. And the yeah. dude is totally laid back. Just like, Mr. Steve, don't worry. We will record everything, but first you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, you know, I'm coughing blood and shit. Fucking weird Canadian vibe, but, but we get through it, man. And, and then all of a sudden the drummer who just moved to USA comes up on a flight on the last day to hang. And all of a sudden 
this dude is smiling, high-fiving me, fucking doing cartwheels, like, oh, this is great. Oh, dude, I see what you're doing there. Now, if you did this on the next one, I'm like, hey, good idea, fuck. And all of a sudden, the improvising is flourishing and the creativity is flowing. And I'm like, this dude got a good sunshine And vibe, you said you know? he's the, the, this is the drummer? The drummer. So what, it, I mean, dude, it's like bass players and drummers. You guys know how to fucking i mean it's just the old other, the dude. old adage you know it's like it's it's always based like the rhythm section you know it's just pretty much they vibe the real you know? deal dude i mean from the first fight so so pierre was like you know pressure relief to me and then this drummer shows up and it was like all of a sudden i'm not sick anymore i'm knocking shit out and it just turned into a celebration that energy and, and, that energy and, and some of the most weird stuff you heard on the album was in presence of yannick and it was like wow. you know we had prepared stuff and then this guy shows up and then all of a sudden i'm doing different shit but it wasn't harder it didn't slow it down it sped it up because i'm a natural born improviser and this guy's just throwing me ideas and we're just throwing it yeah 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 and it just became this exciting thing and so at the so at the end of the night when he's oh, i gotta go back to the hotel and fly back to the u.s i'm like dude you're my guy like where have you been? Like, why am I working? And, 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 and me and Bart got along great. Me and Bart got along yeah, super yeah. great, super nice guy. We work together, but he's, he's just serious. He's an intense mm-hmm. guy. Mm-hmm. And the drummer shows up and it was just like this freaking, I got, you know, birds and hearts and, and cupids going around my head. <laughs> you know, you hear the little heart music in the background. I'm like, where have you been, dude? I could have used you. And so, that was the beginning. That's Yannick yeah. Bercier who runs the studio in Knoxville. And I've gone back there now so many times. Me and Yannick are friends to this day. We've done Gone in April together. You know, we've done three of those albums and tons of video shoots. And um, I've done a couple odd sessions in his studio. And that whole connection of me and Yannick was, you know, He's in built the- right there in Pierre's studio up in the up in the forest. So um yeah, the the Quo Vadis thing very very important in my history. Um, it could have just been a fly in miserable session. You know, maybe the result turned out good, but in my memory, it could have maybe gone badly. But because of of Yannick making an appearance, it it's huge. You know, we've done a lot of work together and became super good friends. So that's super fucking cool, dude. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, yeah. I, the the drummer, He's a great drummer, by the way. Oh, well, that's, that's, oh, oh yeah. Is Yannick There's the drummer? A, so Yannick every, isn't the drummer though. Yeah, he, he's not the, the. He was the drummer with the short hair, right? In the videos and stuff. Yeah, yeah. Yannick was the drummer. So, oh okay. yeah. So those videos we used to watch back in the day that we were obsessed oh, with yeah. our friend Josh. We had the all DVD. The time. The, yeah, yeah, the DVD, the live DVD, dude. So check out that live DVD. What what's it called? That one? I forget. It's at the medley in. Uh, remember the medley? Oh, it's at the medley. Okay. Just yeah, live yeah, in Montreal. Yeah, Montreal. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Live yeah. in Montreal. Yeah, and dude, I mean, they're all amazing. But yeah, the 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 drummer that we're talking about yannick is like perfect live it's like really crazy and he's like yeah. you know it's like that just really precise kind of style so good yeah he's actually the- his his profession he's actually a scientist he that's works. what i was gonna ask oh, nice. that's what, that's what yeah. i was gonna ask i was gonna be like was oh, he a scientist you said he ran yes he works for siemens he, he's he's involved in calibrating like these i don't he's gonna kill me for not calling it the right thing but it's like cat scan type MRI machine, MRI stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But even like Mm -hmm. even more crazy. Like he's the fucking scientist that aims all those sensors to hit right on the fucking X Y axis and all this shit. Like he's got that brain, super brain. I mean, 
not just a smart musician. He's an incredibly smart human. Human, and then yeah. he and he what runs his own studio as a professional level studio there in Knoxville. Records tons of bands there, Damn. and he's there very some... involved in the youth scene. A lot of young bands come to him. He's kind of a mentor and yeah, an awesome, sweet human being. He's um yeah. So the Colvadis thing set that up, and here we are. You know. And he's great. Yannick is the man, dude. I was going to say, a NASA awesome. scientist or rocket fucking guy used to always go to the pound, too. Oh, okay. so actually, read, this dude. is super funny. You bring this up because I've run into him two times in the last two weeks. Really? Oh, uh, yeah. His name's Bob. Or, nope, yeah, yep. Bob. That's his name, Bob. And and uh, so he's known as he's just at every metal show. This dude that's like, you know, everyone's just like always wearing his leather leather jacket, like bald dude, old guy with like he's got metal gray. It's still long. Metal Bob. Metal, metal Bob. Bob. You know Metal Bob? He's kind of older, like way older. Yeah, he is. He's he looks he was gray yeah. like 20 years ago. Yeah. Dude, he works for NASA. He no, so okay. So I talked to him actually two weeks ago about this. I can't believe I didn't even so I'm about tell to my the rumors wrong, huh? No, it's not wrong. Um he contracted him he contracted for them to do some things once. Uh but he's okay. not like he's not like working for them. Because I, I I saw him at a show and I was like because it just was a familiar face from the pound in San Francisco. And I was like, wow, it's fucking, you know, one of those old like dudes that I used to see at the, at the pound all the time is right here. So like, I'm like fanboying over him. I'm like, dude, I, when I was a kid, <laughs> I used to like, you were at every show standing behind me, just going like, you know, doing the yeah. Bob thing. I've been and, in uh, of hangouts with him, just hanging out with us, dude. Yeah, no, he's, I literally like random shows in San, or Santa Cruz. He'll just, he drives down. He just shows up for like a random thrash band that's playing. Like he'll just show up and, um, actually saved him from a pr- pretty brutal uh, mosh pit uh, about a week or two ago. Like so he got he got nailed and I caught him and I brought oh, him back shit. to the yeah yeah. But no, he's still going, man. He looks exactly the same. He's exactly, exactly the same, the dude. Yeah, he's still just at the shows buying the merch. Being you know, he's like literally like probably the most dedicated metal fan that's ever existed. Probably I think he's he's been doing it for how many years and he's at every fucking show on a on a wednesday i went to that show it was a wednesday in santa Cruz. all over the place but now i'm thinking about something else that i wanted to bring up to you steve um dragon (laughs) dragon lord dragon lord's rapture were you did you perform live with them on that so there was a morbid angel deicide tour did you play bass on that tour no no that was derek okay eric's cousin derek that was actually my first show at the pound ever. I was 16 years old, Morbid Angel, DSI, Dragon Lord, Soylent Green. And then finding out you played on that record, I was like, oh shit, maybe Steve was there for my first fucking show at the pound, but no. No. Um, I did the I did the recording with Eric, and then I, I told him it wasn't my thing that mm-hmm, mm-hmm. the whole face painting black metal thing yeah yeah it was it was fun in the studio and i I was brand new in testament we had just finished the gathering and i'm not going to say it felt like a requirement but it felt kind of obliged like eric needed a bass player and he asked me to do it and and not that it was twisting my arm i mean it was it was easy to go in the studio and i had a good rapport with eric and it was just recording and it was real easy to do so it was also easy to say yes and and it was cool. It sounded great. But the the black metal thing in general, that is not that's so far from me. And yeah, I mean, and, it's not to me. It's not really like the 
be all end all of fucking black metal either. I was just bringing it up because that was like the first live show. No, but but when he started talking about like he wanted to push it really into that direction, and I told him it wasn't my thing that he would be better off getting someone that was into that mm-hmm. instead of you know I, I just I could never put the stuff on my face. It wasn't my thing. So <laughs> pretty funny with the, you with the bandana with the, with that and then the black metal. Yeah, dude. <laughs> flip-flops and yeah, flip-flop. khaki Dude. shorts and oh, don't even bring up flip-flops cali death guy. fucking drop i'm i'm a flip-flop fanatic bro and yeah he wears them on, wear stage, them on, the on stage, stage like, and so shit. on the plane ride back from england i just i told him you know it was i had to i had to kind of quit i wasn't quitting but i had to kind of remove myself from the project like long process to not break his heart or anything and just and tell him that it'd be it would be better for him to get somebody that was into it Who's in and he goes it? he yeah. goes well do me a favor he goes we're gonna i'm putting together uh you know our first show is gonna be at the it was at the pound so you're mm-hmm. close anthony but uh he said i'm gonna do uh i'm gonna put i'm gonna make all the proceeds go to james Med- james murphy's medical fund you know that's when james is going through his tumor and his yeah. whole eye removal and everything and um and he goes just do that because I don't have time to look for anybody and, and nobody in the lineup for that very first show used the corpse paint or anything, but it was the same exact lineup on the Rapture album. We, we went, stood on the stage and played the whole set. And I, I did the first Dragon Lord show, but we had agreed on the plane right home that, you know, that would fulfill everything and, and it, everything still remained cool with Testament and everything. Mm-hmm. So I did the, I did the first record and I did the first show and then, saw myself out the door peacefully and right. <laughs> and, and it, it turned out good you know because Derek came back on board and he was fully into the whole image and he did a good job and it, and Derek and Eric are cousins their first cousins so mm-hmm. you know they started testament they called it the legacy but they you know they jammed off and on over the years so very it worked out good but it wasn't my thing it was like I said it was a fun you know four days in the studio to do it the only real reason why i brought it up was these first that i talk about you talk about the uh testament and the gathering the gathering was my first testament record i know that's later on in their discography but i'm i'm born in 84 you know so like metal came at me when it came at me and the gathering was the first testament record that i heard yeah you're 15 years old at at the oldest yeah but before we get into that i just want to hear the human shit i think we stepped right over that i just want to hear like how that became like okay yeah we kind of left off because yeah so chuck bales back to florida and, and like i said we checked out leprosy we weren't really into it um spiritual healing comes out sounds great in fact mm-hmm. probably my favorite death record it just the the, the sound of it is awesome it's brutal it's one of those bridge records for me like from yeah. the old death to the new death that's the bridge record right there yeah so it and it, I, you know i never forgot my friendship with chuck Not, nothing bad ever came out of him going back to florida it was just time and distance but mm-hmm. never a bad vibe never a bad feeling but when spiritual healing came out man it, it just it was kind of like almost like oh man why didn't he do this shit here this is great i mean that was fuck and then they go on tour with pestilence and uh, i'm pretty sure but it might have been carcass anyway they came through back through the bay area chuck's first time back through of course we go out there in mass all the sadist guys posse the same posse just the whole thing and he's just overwhelmed man he's seen this whole 
seen reappear and he's like oh man i miss my days and so that kind of you know showed there was no hard feelings on the way he bailed in his weird way and 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 it's years later anyway and everything's cool and so about a year later Sadis is on tour with obituary and sepultura and we start the tour through florida and we got a day off in orlando and chuck comes and picks all four of us up all four sadist guys goes to the house and we just fucking crash on his living room floor. But all night we're just drinking beer, eating pistachios, watching like watchtower videos and Fuck yeah. just having yeah. a great time. And I don't know if it was there or maybe it was on the tour bus or something, but he was talking about, he had just completely axed his whole lineup, Bill, Terry, you know, James had already been gone and, had somebody else filling in maybe it was paul or somebody but they went to europe without him um they were just trying to fulfill the contract but you know chuck chuck's point of view was his band and they took his livelihood his product over to europe without him huge disrespect you know the band's thinking like oh we got to fulfill this contract well what it did was fulfill their severance because yeah you know chuck axed everybody out and he was starting over with a brand new lineup and i was giving him the old elbow to i was like well when you do your next album come to california thinking like well if he's there we could hang out some more maybe i could watch the recording and it was kind of more of like a you know just old time sake thing well poor naive me i didn't know that elbow meant get me get me i was just saying come (laughs) hang out and so we leave florida and we're working our tour up north up north we get up to milwaukee we get to the milwaukee metal fest and the organizer comes up to me and he goes hey congratulations you're in the death lineup i'm like what i go to the production office pick up the phone you know <laughs> off chuck i'm like hey what's up he's all oh dude you hear the news i'm like what, what do you mean news <laughs> and he goes yeah I, I got the cynic drummer and i want you to play bass on the new album i'm like fuck about fucking time man yeah dude. oh yeah and so I was like psyched. I had to do the rest. I had to finish the whole rest of the fucking Sadist tour thinking like, man, I'm going to play with Chuck again. So um, next spring rolls around. I go to Miami and there's two Senate guys involved in me and Chuck's riffs. And wow, what an experience, man. Those yeah. those two Senate guys were 19 years old. Paul had turned 20 officially before the album. So, but Sean was 19 fucking years old. Me and Chuck were 23 and, and the music that came out of that session is something else, man. Something else, <laughs> dude. It really is. And it's it, it when I mentioned it earlier, it all the guys that I as a vocalist have come across and worked with in my career, everybody, death human, death human, death human, death individual thought patterns, death human, death individual thought patterns. Like those two albums, dude, have always been the albums that these crazy guitar players that I come across in my life, they're always like, those are the fucking death albums. And you're the fucking bass player on that shit, dude. And it always blew my mind. Like watching like, for example, I just rewatched it. There's a 91 rehearsal of you, Chuck, Paul and Sean. And you guys are fucking killing it. You're like the closest one to the dude who ever is recording it. Like it's you and then everybody else is in the background. So you're kind of just like standing. One thing that I wanted to ask was like, nobody talks in that. <laughs> like nobody's talking to each other. It's just kind of like jamming and the song ends 
everybody's kind of doing their own thing and then like <laughs> something happens and another song starts dude there's no there's no communication really who knows dude i mean because we were a room full of hams i mean it was yeah um probably just because we were aware of there was a camera maybe we were a little bit shy totally. oh, okay. probably completely blazed out of our gourd so we were a little bit you know paranoid did chuck smoke weed did oh chuck smoke god dude. yeah <laughs> nice dude this way he talks though he sounds like he sounds like the the typical like the the california stony kind of guy like and paul dude, and sean everybody was everybody was just stoned while you guys were fucking doing that shit blaze <laughs> yes gonzo <laughs> um (laughs) um yeah people have described chuck a mixture of like of like uh a surfer mixed with like a valley girl or something (laughs) yeah yeah his voice his voice yeah he he, they always always try to place the region of it has nothing to do with the region there's no one in orlando that sounds like that yeah like However, he learned how to talk like that. I don't know. Maybe he's. I just, feel like it's got it's got California influence a little. Bit. I was gonna it's got say, a little bit of California, it up over like, here, like mixture of that with like the the Florida. It's like some it's, sort of, yeah. it's possible, but I think that shit's just organic. I think that just came out of him, man. He's just he's like a real life Spagoli. <laughs> it's just dude mr hand on my time I mean, chuck yeah was totally like, yeah. chuck was like dude these riffs are brutal you know i'm not about <laughs> devils and demons i like puppies and kitties i mean it was just, <laughs> it, was just it was unique to him man oh fuck, yeah no we got basically. some pets yeah oh, i think we're gonna go out <laughs> what, what, what kind of pet we got a dog or a cat Two dogs. Yeah. Come here, girl. We're we're pet friendly, dude. Take let's him, let's say gotta, hi to him. Go ahead and take him out if you got it. Come here. If if they gotta they gotta go out. Yeah, dude. Let if him, you need to take, take him let out, the dog, piss, let the dogs can, piss. We, <laughs> let the dog. Oh, look at oh fuck yeah, oh. it's a picture. Oh. Doberman, yeah. Oh yeah. Doberman, yeah. What's it's, up, dude? Those are so sweet. Oh, Were man. you in Snoop Dogg's video in '93? Come on, come on. Is it two Dobermans? Yeah, that's it's awesome, a, man. It's a unique white Doberman is just stunted at birth. <laughs> <laughs> nice, yeah. She's she's 13, almost 14. This little girl. Damn, that's a that's a big Doberman, dude. <laughs> <laughs> and I want my Taco Bell and shit. <laughs> Yo, quiero Taco Bell. Yeah, um, totally looks like him. Oh, totally. Yeah, yeah. That's but, so awesome that you got a Doberman and a fucking Chihuahua, bro. Yeah. Like they're homies too, probably, right? Oh yeah. They were just they've been sleeping together the whole time. That's so cool, dude. Shit, just chilling out in here. Oh, Rufus. Where's Rufus? Shout at? out to Rufus. He has a cone. He had oh, surgery yeah. yesterday. Surgery. Oh, the cone of shame. He's on yeah. drugs. He's on drugs right now. So he's he's like just uh, I had oh, yeah. yeah, I had some gnarly surgeries and shit. Yeah, he had yeah. he had surgery near his wiener. So mm, near wiener. his wiener and some a couple cysts <laughs> removed, right? Dude, he's got a scar that scary. Yeah, I saw yeah. you showed me pictures, dude. Ooh. It was it almost felt like dog porn. Oh. <laughs> well all right then yeah. <laughs> it's just like a big old johnson just like with dude it's like, like an inch long like, i know it's a big it's a huge he's got a big dick so for how gnarly. small he is what kind of dog is he it's hard to see <laughs> he's a he's a cocker spaniel like mixed with like he has some chihuahua in him so he's like a oh. 
He's like a short-haired King Charles with like he's a lap dog. He's a little sass. Guy. Yeah, yeah. He's got a personality for sure. He's doing good though. He's got he's on yeah. doggy meds. That's it's cool. Nice. Poor little buddy. Hope he feels better. Yeah, yeah. I was gonna say I'm. It's awesome that he has an owner that is because dude, that's another thing too. Is like, I think about you as an owner taking your dog to go get a surgery that it needs. How many dogs that don't get the fucking surgeries that they need because their owners are pieces of shit or and they don't so have enough money. Too. Yeah, that's yeah. what I was gonna say. It's oh, just yeah. financial shit too. It's not just pieces of shit. I go for piece. I'm sorry. I know, but <laughs> no, you're right. Some people just can't afford it, and and but it's just like yeah. fuck, dude. That sucks, dude. Yeah, I can't just... afford it either. But credit card, it's like even, it, yeah. You know? I know it's all it's care it. credit. I remember I've done that before. We're like yeah, had a just... like had a dog that got uh, bit in the stomach, and they're like, I'm, uh, I called uh, what's his uh, guitar player from uh Severus Savior your band. I called Mike. him he's he has a veterinarian yeah. so I called him like dude this is happening right now he's like take him to the vet right now he might be going septic or something because I guess he got mm. bit by a coyote or something mm. and uh I took him in and he was just like vomiting and like you know it was like a, it was like a fucking movie but really? they're like yeah they're like it could be like seven thousand dollars for exploratory surgery to fi- oh, fix geez, him that's- and there's about a 20 percent chance he'll live or it's like five hundred dollars put him down and I was like, at the time, I was like fucking broke. And I was like, fuck. All right. Well, God. I guess we have to put them down. Like, I'm, I can't, you know, I can't, five grand, I can't deal with right now. Just can't, you know, bury me at the time. Well, that's a and lot I was of like, money. yeah. So just, it was just a brutal, like, kind of like they put you in this, like, situation. It almost was like a, it was a weird situation at the vet, almost a little salesy, a little like, hey, like yeah. heartstrings money be bad, or yeah. you know what i mean like and i was like this was only 600 i mean that's like it still sucks but it's not like five grand. oh that's nothing yeah yeah <laughs> yeah like jesus christ that's a yeah. rough shit dude well that's people warn me they told me these dobies will like eat anything and then they get this uh, intestinal obstruction and so, so yeah. ever since she's a pop i i got monthly i pay a monthly installment she got full health coverage so if she gets one of those oh, five yeah. or eight grand surgeries i pay like that's 600 bucks deductible yeah. Do you know uh, not to? I mean, uh, too off off the subject of the podcast, but uh, for for pet insurance, I heard it was bullshit. Like it wasn't like didn't cover all insurance is bullshit. Well, no, 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 but like it wouldn't like actually like like I heard for pets it like specifically that doesn't really like cover it when it happens or something. Well, are you you're talking about like normal like uh, an inclusive like your own health insurance or something or yeah? Well, they were like pay twelve bucks a month for this pet insurance, and I was like, no, oh, no, yeah, no, okay, no. okay, yeah. No, there's there's specific uh, pet oriented health coverage out there. The one I use is called Trupanion, and okay. um, they have you can even go to the website before you even sign up for it. You could like try shit, and they have this bar that you could slide. And it, it's according to how much you want to pay a month. And then, you know, it, deductible. it corresponds it you to your deductible. You, like, yeah. obviously, the more you pay, the lower your deductible. But the, but they actually have, um, like, a direct connection with a lot of local veterinarians. And if, if your vet's already on the list, like, as soon as you sign up, like, the shit's all taken care of in-house, online and stuff. And you don't, I mean, yeah, your deductible's there, but they cover everything. And and actually they'll tell you because when I signed up this girl, she's three years old now. And when I signed her up, she was very young. Um, and so then I was going to put the Chihuahua on there and, and with her age, they were like, look, we don't cover this. this, this. And I was yeah. like, well, I'm not paying a bunch of money a month for maybe something that'll never happen. So they told, they told you straight up, like based on the age and all this crap. 
Um, yeah, but with yeah. the Doberman, it was easy because she was young. She had limited history, no pre-existing or nothing. And and so, uh, yeah. And and she's got more years ahead of her and stuff. So Totally. And so what I was saying earlier with insurance being totally bullshit, I was just joking. It is. Because- oh, no, it is. No, a lot of the, uh, that's what that's why I was asking because he actually said he had it. And that it's like, you know, he's like trusting in it. Like for me, I've told or people have told me like not to get it. So I'm like, I don't like I'm pulled both ways. So I'm well, like, 12 bucks a month, that yeah, that's a ripoff. You, yeah, you're going to have, I think I got about a $150 payment a month. And like I said, my doctor will probably six. 700 bucks is it 150 a month you said yeah damn okay so it yeah, yeah it ain't easy but it's worth it though in the end because you love you know, it you, sure. you could tell you man all of a sudden you're something you to happens to your buddy and all of a sudden they want six grand mm-hmm. or something totally and all of a sudden you're like okay well i could get this six grand thing to save them by paying 600 or 700 bucks that now that you're thinking totally. like it's yeah. like it's your child it, that's what it is oh, it's your oh. children oh. Yeah, you don't think about when you have a dog or a cat you don't think about like that end game like like oh they got sick or something like you don't think about that that kind of thing until like you, the your animal starts like giving weird symptoms and you're like and then all of a sudden like your animal brain is like all protective like oh shit what do we have to do what are we gonna you know what i mean and i actually yeah. had that kind of recently where i have a cat but it was like barfing everywhere and I was like, he's like been there through my hard times and everything. He's been like, you know, this little buddy through breakups and all the all the gnarly shit. He's been, you know, so like I see him and I was, all of a sudden I got this like fear, like, fuck, I have to like, you know, like call out sick from work and like do all this shit and like pay like thousands of dollars. I have to do, you know, I was like down. I was like, fuck it. I have to do it. You know what I mean? It's a crooked, yeah. crooked fucking profession. The veterinary system is brutal. How much they totally. charge you to save this, you know. I mean, you would never make that decision with a parent or a brother or your own child. You know, that totally. that is not even a decision. You know, you're moving forward. But with yeah. your pet, it's this weird thing like, well, I, I can't afford it. I got to let it go. And it's just brutal because, people, yeah. you, you know, your pets become part of your family and and the attachment is equally as strong. And then all of a sudden it's like, well, I can't afford it. And the only option is. You know, yeah, I had just to I, I don't mean to be a downer but i was you guys are reminding me like the reason why i don't have dogs now is because when i was younger i was to go through that i my parents made the shitty decision of going through a breeder and getting a pug which is two of the worst combinations of things you can do as somebody who wants to own a dog because the pugs the don't last shit. The pugs don't last a long time, even if they're the most healthiest. They're like one of the lowest on the list, right? Their their attractive quality is a brutal mutation, and mm-hmm. because of that, their yeah. health suffers. Yeah, totally, dude. And they don't they don't last nearly as long as any other dogs that you everybody loves, you know. And uh, I had two brutal experiences. They they tried twice, dude. The first one was um, a a boy and his name was Pugsley and, and he was came from a super overbred family. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and for some reason um, the males get affected more by this specific thing. It's, and it's funny, it's called Pugsacephalitis or some <laughs> shit like that. <laughs> and it's I mean, literally, that's good, <laughs> but it's, it's from in interbreed uh, over interbreeding 
and and they end up with like swollen brains that end up mm-hmm. causing seizures and fucking foaming and all that kind of shit. He didn't even make a year. So he was out Jesus. and then they went they went for round two on a girl and Tasha made it four years. Ah, uh, she made it yeah. four years and then she was having such respiratory issues that we knew somebody who moved to Arizona who had uh, a, her actual sister from the same litter and and she had no respiratory issues so we sent her out to arizona so it was basically like another death like bye dog okay four years of being with you yeah those those type of breeders give that's what they call backyard breeders they're giving the good breeders a bad name because if you go to a good breeding facility and see how they do it you realize that's the best pet you could get yeah you know the breeders that do it right they're breeding out the bad traits they're breeding out the disease they're looking for genetic mutations and not you know looking for cash looking for cash that's all it is yeah i mean you just they put animal a with animal b and make a bunch of Mm -hmm. cde and f's and it's just kind of like grown weed dude it's kind of like grown (laughs) yeah (laughs) (laughs) except your weed doesn't like dial like yeah you burn it but anyways but uh (laughs) (laughs) oh Nice Speaking of weeds, uh, we're in them hardcore right yeah, now. Yeah, we're Let's in the back. weed right now. Again, back to the timeline real quick. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm yeah, drinking. Cheers. I don't want to show you what I'm drinking. I, I'm, I'm going to get, I want to get it going so I can go take a leak and get another beer. But I want to hear more of like that getting ready for human shit, dude. And re- I'm realizing now, Steve, we're going to have to have a part two with you, dude. We're gonna have to have a part two. If you're down, like, because we want to get into your er, your newer shit, and we're already how far are we into this now? Well, I mean, Wait, specifically two. talking about 1991, that's not that far from 84 when we started. <laughs> I know, dude. It's like a we you're threw like it a, in 2003. You're like a Joey Diaz. You're like a Joey Diaz, dude. Where we got to pull out every detail in your your life. So the best was this morning. Yeah. I was like, I was like, I want to kind of just look at Steve's. Like, I know he's been in like these big bands, whatever. I'll go look at his Wikipedia. And then I was like. I was like counting. I'm like, oh, like 43 bands. Like it was like the, the list on Wikipedia was like, Jesus, you're on that album. The F will do author. All these like crazy, like fucking bands. I was like, what the, that was. Oh, All right, that, but you you're, know. you're pulling them away from the human shit. I just want to hear the human story real quick. Individual thought pattern story, all that stuff. There's no, there's no real quick to either of those stories. <laughs> I know that, that's fine, dude. We're still here. We're here for the long haul. As long as you want to be here. Yeah. Um, yeah human crazy yeah i don't know what's up with that rehearsal we we uh because of the drop well out of the four of us two of them were from cynic they had their rehearsal space in miami drums are set up so i mean i flew all the way in from california so i was mobile and it was easy enough for chuck just to drive the four hours down from orlando to to miami and um that's where they did that whatever footage you saw um i gotta say sorry um I, I'm not sure that's you, Steve, in that footage, because when I looked up Death 1991 rehearsal, it's, it's Scott Garino on bass. And the there's first there's actually two going. There's two going around. The, the one with okay. me in it is pretty rare. The one that most people see is Scotty Carino on there. OK, yeah. so that's was good he wearing. A, was, was he wearing a bandana? That's sort of a no, bitch. Scott wouldn't wear okay, a bandana. He was he was. As big as I am now, I was a I was a string bean back then, and Scott was a little bit chubby than me. Um, both had I blonde hair. A string bean. 
<laughs> I remember but, uh, string bean. Um, yeah. yeah, I think the main one, the better quality one is Carino. But there, and, and I got used to telling people that wasn't me. And then someone sent it to me. I'm like, oh shit, there's me. So there is one that, that is going around that okay. does have me in it, but it's a, kind of a crappier one. Um, I don't know what it's called. I don't know which one I'm talking about then. I, I think, I think I found the one you might be in. It says it's at Chuck's house. That's where the rehearsal took place. So. No, we never. Well, for human, no, we didn't. Chuck lived in an apartment back then. Uh, okay. Well, in any case, yeah, I, I couldn't find that particular video that Anthony's seen, but I don't um, know where I, he might. He might have seen the one with Carino. Um, that it. That's a yeah. Because sick dude. In my memory, that's that's the one. I, I had to tell people, ah, oh, not me, not me. Because even uh, Scotty played on the MTV Lack of Comprehension video. Mm-hmm. And because he just has blonde hair and he's banging his head the whole time, some people don't really see the difference. And um, I've had to tell people, yeah, that's Karina. So, I probably with blew the- it. I probably blew it. Well, I want to find the one, but I'm not. No, there is there is one with me in there because I never thought there was. And then someone sent me the link. I'm like, oh, shit, there I am. So if it's still up, I don't know. I, I did see one, um, but it's, it's a crappier one and it sounds crappier. And um, is uh, Joseph is the one that you're seeing with Karina. Is that the one where Chuck is standing like right on the drum riser face to face with Sean, basically. And you see his kind of shorty, short ass. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. 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 He had super short shorts. Well, yeah, I, mean, I do remember. Oh, we that. just got out of the eighties, man. That's what I know. I know. I'm just saying that's yeah, yeah. one of the, uh, that's one of the details I do remember from the video. <sighs> Give me a second. I let the girl up. All good. All right. All right. It's like one of the details is like the the, the butt that he had. Like, I just yeah. I just typed in death human rehearsal and it is the one uh, tour rehearsal March eleventh, nineteen ninety one. Yeah, I think that's, that's Scott Carino on base. Sc- okay, so I fucked up. My bad, guys. I mean, I didn't cite the video that I was talking about, so it doesn't I don't know, Cite your sources. I mean, we're, we're sitting with a professor cite here. Cite your sources, dude. Be a journalist. Dude. Yeah. Hey, at least you didn't misspell Steve's name on the flyer. <laughs> <laughs> dude, hey, we need, you did, this you is the most I've okay, held my ahead. piss, like an episode. I've only pissed twice. I probably would have pissed like six times now. Oh, he's coming back. I'm going to go pee. Right. <laughs> oh, man. So yeah, so how, actually, I have a question about like you know you said that uh, Paul Masvidal and uh, Sean Reinert were super young kids coming in. Like their talent level when you saw them, like were you just blown? Away? Did you were they something that you had not seen, or like was it something that like yeah? No, I was already I was already a cynic fan. Um, when Sadis was in the studio, um, in that fantasy studio, um, doing Swallowed in Black, when we go to the lounge just to hang out, roll a dube or whatever. Um, seemed like for some reason I was DJ. So I had a couple demos I had come across and I, I don't know if it's the 88 or the 89 yeah. demo had Euroboric forms and stuff had yeah. like cool artwork. It wasn't like a crappy demo. It was like a nice package demo of cynic. And, um, Paul was singing straight death metal style back then. And, um, Tony Choi on bass just shredding and, and, uh, all the sadist guys liked that demo. And, um, before we left on this on the SOS tour, Sepultura, Obituary, Sadist, I had a tiny influence to get a couple of my bands, my favorite bands, to open up some of the shows. And um, 
when I saw the Miami date, I told the Roadrunner guys, said, hey, get Cynic on the show. So they play, we played a uh, crazy place in Miami called the Trash Can. And so Cynic opened the show. And after the show, we went out to eat some late night place. And, I, and that's where I got to like kind of talk to Sean and, and vibe with him just as a fan. Like I said, you know, a couple of weeks before I got the news that we were destined to be on the same album. So quick introduction to the guys in a quick short bonding period, you know, told them I'm an old fan. And of course they were into sadist craziness. And so there was a, there was a short, you know, little hangout night where we got to know them. But um, yeah. So when I showed up to rehearse the songs for the, for the studio. So we had, we had that one night that we kind of met and got to know each other and, and leading up to the album, we had talked on the phone and, um, you know, just gabbing like kids on the phone. And, and so, yeah, I wasn't brand, brand new, yeah. but standing there witnessing, you know, playing the same shit, you know, I was, I was blown away. Actually, um, I stayed at Sean's house. He had a spare room and Sean's routine, you know, usually what do you do? The first thing you wake up, you usually take a leak or something, get a drink of water. Sean's first thing was to get right out of bed and sit on the drum kit and play for Jesus like one or two minutes, just a quick little burst. But, and then he would stretch and yawn and go take his leak. <laughs> and so it didn't matter how long I could have slept every <laughs> morning staying at Chuck's house or at Sean's house. It was, that's what woke me up. Like, oh, fuck, Sean's up. All right, let's get up. And uh, he lived in a community that had like, um, where all the backyards kind of surround a lake and everybody has a little dock and stuff. It wasn't like a huge lake. So it wasn't like big boats. It was more kind of scaled down. So he had a little, I don't know, some kind of little boat, a little rowboat or some shit. Yeah. And we would come home from rehearsing and, he, he kept his weed in the freezer and it was like had all this orange hair and just really crystallized and what we were looking for back then dude the orange hairs of the red dude, hair the I know. like i said oranges. like i yeah. said in the 80s we had two kinds of weed that's it <laughs> yeah. good and bad yeah he's yeah. got this because florida was hard to get weed and he had to, it was like imported from georgia you know <laughs> and, it was, <laughs> and it was crazy and we would and it was like fucking two in the morning we we walked down the hill and go on his dock get in the rowboat and we would just we would just lay on different ends of this boat and just look at the stars late i mean it's like like 89 90 degrees in the middle of the night in miami yeah, i mean there's yeah. no real difference between day and night it's just 24 hour short sleeve weather and we're just floating on the water, just high talking about comets and just aliens cool and, and just, shit. yeah, just, just loaded and just floating there. And, that, and that's kind of the whole connection between me and him doing the, doing the album. I mean, it was just being zonked out of our brain and just in the studio playing shit. Like, dude, that's a comet. That's a fucking pulsar. <laughs> man. Like fucking Just loaded, man. <laughs> And That's like awesome, dude. You know, every so back, fucking then, cool. back then when we were in the studio, you know, everybody recorded live, man, just like a rehearsal. It's like everyone played at the same time and all the mics were live. Okay, you could overdub vocals and you could overdub solos if you needed to, but back then the mindset and the technology level was a live recording. 
yes, repairs could be done, overdubs could be done. It wasn't, you know, we're not talking Beatles, let it be type shit, but mm-hmm. it was old school. And that's how we recorded human. But, um, you know, prior to the human session, when we do these live recordings, you're getting the, you're getting your playback from the desk and you always got to tell the guy, Oh, give me more of me or I need. Mm-hmm. And nobody in the band wants more bass except the bass player. And so yeah. every time I record in the studio, I could barely hear myself play. And mm-hmm. here I am in Morris sound doing the human session. It's the first time I ever saw a fucking headphone monitor with knobs on it, you know, and, and we were well rehearsed for this album. We we knew our shit. So I just turned Paul and Chuck off. And standing right next to the drum kit, I really didn't need him in my headphone mix because I had the volume right there standing by him. So really, my whole headphone mix was just bass. Because while we're playing, I hear the drums. So when I'm recording, I'm hearing bass and drums, and that's all I need. But... I took the headphones off and set them on the thing. And we would always have visitors come in there and stuff. And, you know, Morbid Angel guys came hang out. And of course we'd have impromptu listening sessions, you know, check up how the new death records going and everything, you know, different guys would come through. And um, a couple of the cynic guys came up and Tony Choi bass player. I totally admire man, full of chops. We're standing out in the live room passing a dube or something. And then a couple guys are in the control. So they hit play and that triggers all the headphones. And my headphones vibrate, man. Tony goes, picks them up, puts it on. And of course, the playback is only bass now because the way my knobs are set, it's only bass, you know, because I'm listening to live drums. And he's like, dude, these licks are sick, man. I don't even know what song this is. This is crazy. (laughs) (laughs) And so that's, that's what I was listening to while we were playing and just the tone, I had this really thick overdriven SVT sound with my Rickenbacker. Mm-hmm. And there were times where I would kind of out of body experience. And I thought I was like Chris Squire from yes, like just jamming these yes tunes on oh. in a death fucking context. And <laughs> I mean, yeah, and it, it, we would stop and the engineer would hit the talk band and go, all right, what happened? And we would just look at each other and just be like, I don't know. What are we playing? <laughs> and we're like, fuck, take a break. And we would go, we'd go outside in the mosquitoes and whew, we're loaded. So we go back in and like, okay, focus, focus, focus. Yeah, yeah. We just, that was our that was our mantra because we would just get so absorbed and just derivative. Like we would just we're supposed to be playing like death, which is like paint by numbers. I mean, death riffs are very structured very simplistic mm-hmm. but with with sean in there doing that and me following him it was going way off abstract and we would just we would start laughing at each other like dude you're high you're fucking high so we're like <laughs> yeah. we would just like we would look at each other and go like this we're having to go focus 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 okay okay and we play we get into it and get into it and it was no shocker to me that the following year Senate goes up to Morristown record and then Sean goes, dude, check out our new album. And I go, fuck, it's called Focus, motherfucker. (laughs) (laughs) Oh shit. I don't know. That that might have been a coincidence, but man, I'm just imagining you guys going, dude, you're high. Nah, you're high. All right, focus, focus, focus. (laughs) So I just continue to smoke more. Like, dude, 
we're doing an out. The red light's on, dude. I, I know, dude. I'm fucking load. Okay, go. Wait, wait, wait. wait. What are we playing? <laughs> like, I know what song. Oh shit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was it was quite different coming back two years later for individual thought patterns. It was like it was serious business, man. It was yeah. Yeah. totally different thing, man. I mean, I I wasn't indulging as much back then. I think we kind of waited till the work was done, maybe. Um Chuck probably fucking from the moment he woke up was puffing. I know yeah. I was on a different vibe. Um, Gene, actually, Gene, up until the the tour cycle for the album. So, in other words, a few months after the recording was the first time he ever smoked weed in his life. So, the re- yeah, the recording session was totally different. The, and it wasn't like kind of anything rigid. It was just a different, just a different thing. It wasn't, you know, just a just a different vibe. I mean, I, I think Chuck probably puffed, but it was just probably a couple quick hits, and then we just got to business. It was. It was uh, way more focus, focus, and less fucking, fucking, yeah. you know, universe and shit. In but, human form was actually my first song I ever heard by death. I I forget how it was. It was on a compilation or some shit, and that was my first really? introduction to death. My first was uh, it was like, what year was it? I think it was like a like ninety eight or something. And I, I bought like I, I was just getting into like re, like he, like really heavy like metal and stuff and you know Nile and Cannibal Corpse and bands like that, and uh, I was at like this place like Lose Records and I, I like everyone told me you should like check out Death you know I was like all right cool, and so I got Human you know, and I put it on in my car like the CD and I just remember that and just being like, just what the fuck it, I was like just. Mm-hmm jaw like drop like this is so fucking good like what the hell dude i've never heard anything like it you know it was so sick like perfect and then of course you know i've been worshiping it for you know more than 20 years or whatever yeah but dude so sick dude you're a legend man it's awesome (laughs) hell yeah dude casey focus (laughs) so so one thing that comes out about that album yeah sorry is the the bass on the first mix is really buried gone yeah so but finally the remaster that's like my favorite remaster of any album i've ever heard because the bass is back and it's like a whole different album so did you have any say in in that process totally um if it wasn't for me they wouldn't have done that because I remember talking to Chuck about it because when he called me to come back in 92 to do individual thought patterns, he said, dude, it's not going to be like that again. We're going to, we're going to do you right. You know, the mix is going to be everyone. No one's going to get left out. You're going to make it up to you, that type of thing. So, yeah. And obviously it it did. It was, it was huge. Um, And so with individual thought patterns already behind us, we had talked about, you know, how cool if, if human had a four way equal mix as well, instead of me getting toasted out of there. And he told me, I want to remix it and turn up the bass. And when he had recorded human, he, he had a Randall head and some outboard gear, like a rack with 
outboard effects. And he was kind of following Paul Masvidal's lead. Paul is a total tech head. I mean, you hear him sing through the vocoder. Yeah. Paul understands that shit. Chuck mm-hmm. is old school. He he got that because he thought the equipment would make it better. But, you know, operators got to be up to par. And Chuck was mm-hmm. not a good operator. And he had complained about the guitar sound and human being a little too muddy, a little too saturated. And I and when he brought up the idea of remixing human to turn up the bass, I was the one that said, well, when you open up the multi-track, you could go in and manipulate the guitar sound and clean it up somehow. You could reamp it or whatever, you know, and fix that. And this is easy for a bass player to say with with the guy gone. Can defend, but it's the God's honest truth. He said, no, I don't want to fuck with nothing. I just want to turn up the bass. And that's what he told me. And. I had mentioned it down the road to somebody. Um, I think Eric Greif had heard about it. Or maybe I told Eric directly. That's what Chuck said. And, and he believed me. And they went and f- dug the the tapes out of the vault and remixed it. Now, they did a complete remix. They didn't do what Chuck said. I don't know if, you know, if Chuck had complete technical fortitude to say, just turn up the bass. That might have worked. You know, if if a such thing as a full recall was possible just to push the bass fader, I don't know if that would have worked. That's what was in Chuck's mind. But what they did was open up the multi-track and, you know, dial in complete new sounds across the drum kit, the guitar, the bass, yeah. the vocals. Everything mm-hmm. was remixed mm-hmm. um, with the intention of, you know, taking the dirt off the bass and, and bringing a little light to it. Um you know, and, I, and I'm faced with this question a lot. They say, you know, do you like it? Is it better? Um, yes. Now, you know, it's not a, a one, a zero or a one. It's not, is it bad or is it good? To me, there's a there's a wide degree. And is it better? Yeah, to a degree. You know, it is improved. I wish we could push push it a little better. I wish someone in the band um, was consulted a little for the remix, at least on an approval level. I'm not technically apt, so I wouldn't know what frequencies to fucking boost, but I wish it turned out a little teeny bit better. But having said all that, it's, it's an improvement over the original as far as um, digging out things that were lost in the original mix. Now they're the purest purists that, you know, prefer the original just for the fidelity and, and, and the integrity of what it's supposed to represent at the time that it came out and all that. And I dig that. Um, so it's part way there. It's, it's an improvement. I'm, I'm thankful that it, it was attempted and I'm, I'm glad that the base was brought out a little, I wish it could be better, but uh, that's, that's what it turned out. And um, yeah. yeah. And so, so it's improved. And what's cool though, is they got to, they got to get in and get some bonus tracks on there. And then, you know, you could hear the demo <clears throat> tracks before, and then you, you, there's the, the infamous, we say um, the bass and drums only, you know, then you can really hear the complete quasars, pulsars, comets and all that. Yeah. Universe yeah, I, going I, on. I very much like enjoy it. listening to those just drum and bass tracks that come as bonus things on yeah. various albums that I've come across. 
the drum and bass is where I actually get really excited to listen to like, because the rhythm section is way more important than most people comprehend. I mean, they, they like the guitars, they like the vocals, but really what's getting them to groove is the drums and bass. Dude. You're saying people have a lack of comprehension? Yeah, dude, a <laughs> lack of comprehension, dude. For sure. Oh, yeah, totally. <laughs> <laughs> no, but for what Steve was saying, too, like to be a, to be a musician on an album like that and not to be fully what shown on the first slab of that album you know but also i'm I'm thinking about like you were saying nobody from the band really had any say in anything so it's like it gets to a point where it's like somebody just has access to all these tracks and they can kind of just make it their own thing which which i don't know if that really works like listening to individual thought patterns their remixes like the drums are actually overpowering they're yeah. too they're way way more and i think they even like replace some of the sounds too on the kicks or something i don't know yeah it, and it got carried away so they remixed human which was authorized probably by my story via what chuck's wishes were mm-hmm. which is fine because you know it's chuck's band and it's his it's his wish carried out um to people they trust to do that but and then out of nowhere they remix individual thought patterns mm-hmm. and it's like no one ever requested it no it, didn't need it, it just right? turned into this power thing like oh i can do it cool do it yeah. and then once again i don't know of anyone in the lineup that was consulted or anything but when i heard it yeah yeah, I didn't Fuck have a that problem remake. with that mix at all. And actually, like being my first introduction to death, like that's a sacred mix to me. So when yeah, it's changed, it kind of yeah. just becomes like I, I'm never going to be able to get the full experience from the new mix that I did the old mix because of the nostalgia and all the memories attached to it at that time in my life, blah, blah, blah. It's never, ever going to be what it was in the beginning. So it's like, what is this remixing thing that we've been doing? You know, like. Yeah, it was a little bit of overkill kind of. Mm -hmm. uh, Yeah, I don't support that remix at all. I don't I don't know. Like you said, I I don't see where it sounds better. It's just it was a waste. And uh, hopefully, uh, dude, you were a part of those two monumental albums. So let's move a little bit forward. So now. Uh, um, human comes out and then a vision of misery comes out. You guys come out with the bang sadist full fucking production. Now we're, we're right in the mix. We're roadrunner. We're fucking doing that. Like that. So is that your rebuttal almost? <laughs> no, not at all. No, I mean, you're just moving forward. You're just, yeah, like, just sadist doing. Yeah back to doing our thing because you know? i mean your your base is very prominent in that mix yeah so i'm just saying like was it somewhat of a little bit of a maybe in the back of your mind you're like no no no, no connection it was just um I, I was just the other main creative force of say it's me and darren wrote almost all the songs rob moore had pitched in a song or two per album but you know the entire sadist catalog is 
you know, 49% me, 49% Darren. And uh, I'll say a vision of misery was my first introduction to you guys. And the song machines is what locked it in for me. (laughs) That's one of Rob Moore's songs. Uh, So few that he did, they were really fun fucking songs that he wrote. That's a um, fucking song, dude. That's got the old, Fender Frankenstein fretless on it. And um, it sounds like somebody's like blacksmithing in the background at certain parts. Yeah. That was our first venture into putting synthesizer over fucking crazy Sata shit, which evolved into me becoming completely Getty Lee on stage playing double decker synthesizer at the same time as bass. That was the beginning of just doing sound effects, you know, and, and, uh, and just having fun with, shit in the studio <laughs> hell yeah dude and that literally that locked me in with sadist was right there was you, you guys experimenting with that and and showing your uniqueness yeah i mean we had brought up bill matoyer who was recommended by the record company but um what a great match it was got got to befriend bill and to this day we you know we stay in touch a little bit and um and he knew I had, I was starting to show a knack towards um, engineer and, and then the studio gear. And, and he was real kind of mentor-ish, you know. Um, if you can't be in or out. Get in. Come on. <laughs> she don't like the door closed. She's out. She wants in. You let her in and then you close the door and then she's like, no. Yeah, no. that's how it works. That's how it works. <laughs> yep. <laughs> but yeah, Bill was killer. He was, uh, he was such a veteran that he saw us very well rehearsed, very, we knew what we wanted. So he's like, okay, cool. My job's easy, you know? And, and, um, and because of our camaraderie that we developed through recording, I mean, because a couple of the guitar parts were really frustrating. And you, while you wait for the two inch to rewind, set up, start over, punch, fuck the punch rewinding you know it's a process and stuff and just getting that equipment to flow with your you know to get your take just right that's hard enough but to tell the guy no 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 you you want to punch it on the third one i want to go on the tom hit the you know i knew that lingo i wrote these songs and i was Mm -hmm. in and so bill taught me the otari remote you know here's the punch here's the bus here's you know and so bill got to go have a coffee and i got to sit there and do the painstaking punch in punch out but it went fucking rapid fire because i could tell the guy hey on your second f sharp neener neener go to the bump bump and with the click click, and we had our whole lingo down and i'm punching in our guitar players and we're getting you know great performances down and bill comes in you know he's stirring his coffee going how's it going cool it's just tracking you know it's just piecing the other guitar part not that detrimental i couldn't really ruin anything as long as i just stayed to the stuff he showed me and and it turned out great and um while he's mixing it and stuff you know i had my seat right next to him i'm fucking with the faders and and learning that stuff but i think because i was so hands-on and and trusted by bill to help the process with the band members i i think it was pretty easy for this bass player to get some decibels on there <laughs> oh yeah so, dude no yeah. it's a killer record it, i i recommend it to everybody dude yeah. this a vision of misery dude fucking a healthy healthy slab of unique 
death threat. Yeah, it was it was weird because like you know we did our first record, like I said, and that was totally on our own. So we were fucking speed demons. And part of the reason probably why we didn't get picked up right away is because we we're going over people's heads a little bit. So by Swallowed and Black, we're trying to write stuff still in our crazy way, but you know, trying to become listenable, trying to become a little more ear friendly and, and it's working, it's good. But by vision, we had brought it down even more. And even though we're still fast, it's, it's down for us. And I think that album has a little bit, it's show, it's Seda showing that we're looking for hooks. We're looking for, you know, stuff. We're not trying to blow over people's heads for there's, effect. Anymore. I think there's even a blast beat on that album too. You guys are, you had a little Stint of like a five second yeah on the, on the on the wake of severity i think all the albums have a little burst of that and and it's funny because even morbid even dave vincent and morbid angel was trying to figure out if john allen was playing bass blast before pete sandoval like some kind of invention or whatever but oh, yeah. um john had a great way of describing it. he called it reverse thrash so um you know double up on your hi-hat you know, well he would switch hands and he would still hit the high up, but the snare's the one going. Bah, 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 yeah, bah. yeah. And um, it sounds like a blast. It's not if you break it down. It's not the official mm-hmm. blast that's now pretty w- widely accepted, but it it has that sound. It's Keep it's kind feet. of a unique John Allen blast. But you know, you take all the all the little nerdy details out of it, and it's fucking a blast pretty much yeah. there's uh he does it on twisted face on the first album which goes back to our first demo in 86 he does it on hands of fate first song on side two on the first album and like you noticed on the wake he, he does it here and there and to him it was just a way to speed up the thrash beat to set up the the normal thrash beat you know something a little crazier that would go mm-hmm. settle in and that's yeah. kind of what it was in the beginning of the blast beat with like the repulsion and napalm and terrorizer and all those dudes. It was just speeding up the, cause you were talking, <laughs> alluding to it earlier. Everybody just wanted to be fast. They just want to be fucking fast. However, we can be the fastest band right now. Totally. That was what it was. And it was like a full body vibration. Was like <laughs> now it's like so controlled. You sit back and, and the movement is like you're just kind of flicking it with your finger, and the stick moves about that high. It's like, <laughs> but back then it was like the full crumb you with still your see elbow. The fucking, yeah, the yeah, and your yeah. body was like the counterweight. Like, <laughs> it was like insane, and it was that's why I was considered really, really the you know the penultimate fucking thing to attain. Like I could blast, wow, fuck. <laughs> yeah, but, yeah. Uh, but John Allen's up there with the he's kind of the you know uncredited part of the first wave of that shit but but we always did it in in quick in bursts like there was yeah, no that's what it was it was yeah, like a two measure thing or whatever yeah just and you know and we meet all these young black metal guys from norway and like oh now we listened to your album when we were in high school in new york and i can't believe how much black metal sadist influenced it no idea that what we were doing you know we were just we were just trying to be you know, a heavier Metallica and a faster Slayer. We had no idea that evil shit coming out of Norway. Those kids were looking up to us, but you know, that's that's where it leads. How to. things evolve, dude. It's like, well, you just said um, you're just trying to be a, a heavier Metallica, faster Slayer. Like, it's just what you come across, and you're just like, I want to be there. There's like this in you a new version of what you 
take in that you think is new so you're going to put it <laughs> out and and it's all these different variants of what oh. you're taking in you know it's just like oh this is something that i think is new because i it feels new to me yeah well yeah it's such a limited like like music spectrum to pick from too like these black metal kids nowadays can be like oh i like a little bit of this a little bit of that like you guys were like helping create like the the fucking the root of all of it you know what i mean like it was like yeah i mean we were we were just happy to be a little bit more evil than creator and then abbott from immortal comes up and he's like you're my main influence like whoa <laughs> you yeah. Know? yeah 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 <laughs> That's totally. it's crazy to think like, and you were alluding to it earlier. It's like you guys, the Cali shit was a little bit before the Floridian shit, didn't? Way not, before. I'm not. I'm not trying to be like fucking. Oh, we started this shit because I didn't have anything to do with it. But <laughs> no, I, it, I, I, it's I, way before, and that's why Chuck bailed on Florida to come to Cali to find a lineup. That's what I'm saying. Didn't dude, exist. Want- what you you notice that they talk about that in that documentary that Joseph was talking about? I think they talk about California a little bit in that, right? Am I tripping? Yeah, yeah, and, they do. And and how like the basically like the fire that fucking was lit under Chuck to start doing what everybody loves was happening right here dude in fucking concord he lived in concord for a while <laughs> yeah. dude yeah like, and then he moved and then he moved to antioch you guys yeah. nobody around the world you guys have no idea about either one of those cities no I, <laughs> <laughs> they don't need to <laughs> yeah 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 stay away <laughs> yeah but i do because i grew up fucking you know an hour away from the well conference not even an hour away but anorak's about an hour away if no yeah. traffic right so right. it's like it's so crazy to me to think that like the florida scene is so heavily leaning on chuck and death and all that stuff but really like the roots of it all was happening over here guys well it's yeah it's, not it's roots, complicated, roots, it's but complicated. Like, it, it is it is it's like you know metallica megadeth you know, testament. It's morphing that. The morphing aspect. Florida started. You you had atheist and obituary and, and morbid angel and stuff, and then you know that's a totally different sound. You know, which kicked over right after that. Then everything started coming out of Sweden, which was a blend of those two, and then it just started ping ponging around mm-hmm. New York and Germany and and then. Pretty soon you watch how it just accelerates and people just pick up on something. And, you know, it's, it's like that whole thing where they call the new wave of British heavy metal, you know, yeah. you know, priest and, and all that shit kicked off all the Americans. You know, it's a, it, it it's is, a pretty yeah. cyclic thing. And it's it a back, just, a, back and forth symbiotic fucking. It's a oh, mutating, mutating virus. Sorry for oh, the times. I know it's 2021, but. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, watch out i know right yeah no dude it is it you is. might get canceled hey. man you say i know i know no hey <laughs> <laughs> hey many viruses have mutated before you know that's my you know but i think that that's just like art in general right everybody's influenced yeah. by everybody before that person and and they just express it in a hopefully a unique way to them at least you know so what did you think of the the death documentary yourself? Like seeing it, did you see it? I mean, obviously you probably 
I mean, I randomly just had it like on my front screen as like a recommendation. Just said death, and I was like, well, I have to watch this now. Like, and uh, it you was watch it actually, on like Amazon Prime, right? It was Amazon yeah. Prime, and it was like actually like I mean, as far as the I don't know how historically correct all of it is, but I mean that, that's what I was going to ask you. But as far as like the way they put it together, I was like, damn, this is like a one of the better metal documentaries I've seen. As far as like, I enjoyed it, yeah. Yeah, there's yeah, it's it's overall very well done. Felipe did a great job. He he has a, a very high sensitivity to those involved and wants to make the history correct. He wasn't after any kind of agenda. It wasn't like murder in the front row that like it's about oh, yeah. Bay Area metal and you watch it and it's like three bands, you know, mm-hmm. or you know, there was no, there was no bias. He he really had a good attention to reach out to everybody possible. I mean, you see Chris Reifert all the way to Shannon Ham, you know, the bookends of first to last. And I thought it was well done. And um, I thought everybody got to speak freely and not much edited out of it. It's pretty much the way we've said it. Um, there's a couple people on that I don't really recognize, I guess some kind of weird, uh, journalists or some kind of weird super fans from some period talking mm-hmm. what they think they know, you know, but that's probably just a little territorial for me being way on the inside from 17 year old Chuck and being yeah. all the way lasting in and out till being in his final lineup. He left behind with the control denied guys and stuff. So, you know, I know I, I span that whole, you know, line of, of Chuck's career and I know the people in and out and you know so when a couple of people on there I didn't recognize popped up I was like yeah whatever I don't care what you say but yeah it's like a 25 year old going like well this is what happened you're like okay well wait yeah some guy saying it. like man you know <laughs> you know it's supposed to be about the history of death and the guy's telling us like his favorite records or whatever. I'm like all right but I guess they're important <laughs> people somehow they have some other kind of angle to offer that balance it out yeah. But um, as far as the ex-members is fine, I thought I thought overall maybe Eric Greif had, you know, inserted himself a little too over much for the history. He he was in and out and in the whole span of the career, he was kind of a small percentage of it. And he kind of took over as this overlord, kind of inserted mm-hmm. himself as this big, big part of it. Um, I could tell yeah. right now if Chuck was here, he wouldn't have any of that. Like I would be out of there, but whatever. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. advantageous and opportunistic, and he got to turn his 15 minutes into fame into 15 boring hours. But um, <laughs> I told him that, um, you know, not yeah. just talking shit about someone who recently passed. I, I asked him why the fuck did he go jury curl and sit on a grand piano? He should should have looked like Rocker Grife that he always was. But anyway, he just <laughs> he rolled with what he wanted to how to present himself and yeah. Talked up a good story and makes every, you know, gets that big public symphony going, uh, sympathy going for him. But, uh, yeah, I mean, you asked, you open that can. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's all I mean, good, dude. Overall, very well done. It, um, the story, <laughs> I believe, to my knowledge, um, very accurate. Okay, yeah. cool. Nice. Yeah. And and we're just jumping all over the place now. So I Weeds. just mentioned Weeds. Uh, Control Denied. I wanted to ask you, what was it like working with Richard Christie? Yeah. yeah. Um, you know when a song's like on the, you hear, you know, you hear a song, you kind of tap along with it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So imagine trying to tap along 
to three sneakers in the dryer. I mean, <laughs> Rich, Rich is pretty unique, man. Um, that's a crazy style. Um, yeah. You know, he's, he's got incredible chops. He's got a, he's got a, you know, wow. His, his way of thinking is, is out there and he follows up, you know, Sean, Gene and Gene again. And then he's the guy who's got to come in and play after that. So he, he was ready to just go full octopus arms and, and <laughs> lay it all out there. And Chuck was the kind of guy that, I mean, look at me. I mean, he, absolutely supported and pushed individualism you know it, the more you sounded like someone else the less he wanted it i mean he wanted just he wanted you to be you and be more you and less like anyone else and so richard comes in with a crazy flamboyant style and chuck's pushing him pushing him like yeah 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 and so it was it was a challenge um there was a you know, I was alone in the studio with Jim Morris. Chuck was up in New York getting radiation. And um, Richard and Shannon came by at some point. I wasn't alone the whole time. But there was there was a good chunk where I'm figuring out bass completely on my own with Jim, which is not on your own at all. Jim's a great guy to work side by side. Excellent ear. Um, good good coach. Um, got me through the recording. But there were there were times where, and, and I'm pretty new to Pro Tools. This is uh, 1999. I don't know when it kind of became the mainstay, but, you know, even even working on ADAT, it's, the, the operation is the same. I mean, stop, rewind, punch, continue. You know, there was no computer screen. You don't see waveforms and stuff. So I was pretty new to Pro Tools. And, um, yeah, it was tough nailing some of those breaks because – it was recorded without a click. So there's, there's no visible grid that the music sat on. It was just open field. Um, yeah, it was tough. And uh, there was times where I would stop and boom, try to come in on the next beat and miss it completely. And Jim would just stop and kind of pivot his chair and just laugh and go, I remember this. You're not going to get it. I'm like, Hey man, Hey, you know, ah, give me a chance. It's new. He goes, no, 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 no. It's not what you think. It's not you. It's Richard. It's a unique <laughs> time. When the guys, when Chuck was recording, he was standing next to him and you'd come out of the roll, stop, and you would see the arm go up, bam. And he had the visual and they came in tight. But he said, it's not on a click. It's not on a grid. It's a feel thing. It's a visual thing. And I don't have that. And so that's the first time I ever saw my note get slid over in time. And it felt like, oh, God, you know. Of course, now we're fucking beat detecting and sliding <laughs> shit left and right. But it was it was tough, you know. But when it comes together, the there's a there's a means to the madness, you know. Yeah. Richard's stuff is thought out and it in it's very melodic, very linear. <laughs> He's a unique drummer, and it was yeah. it was a challenge to play to that. But since then, we've we've done quite a few actually. In 97, I went to Florida and I was part of the, the writing um, sessions and the pre-production recording for The Sound of Perseverance. And that was just demo level. So, you know, you could leave mistakes. You're just trying to get a big picture of the song. And But that was recording with Richard. And then um, and then we went on to do Ice Earth together in a, in a big batch of Charred Walls of the Dam 
album together. So I got very used to Richard. And so yeah. when I was, I, I was gonna say, so like working with all these different drummers, do you think that that is also uh, a factor in how sick you are as a bass player? Because all <laughs> these course. all these individual voices have come through to be the other half of the rhythm section of all these these groups that you're in and and you're constantly being you know challenged by these unique voices in the drums huge huge element of my playing i mean i was thinking about the list of drummers that i've been fortunate to be matched up with on recordings it's incredible just i mean the obvious ones sean and gene and john allen and you know, Yannick from Covadis, you know, these, you know, Richard, these guys are obvious, but then there's so many that were touch and go that I can't even believe like Dave Lombardo and Dean Castronovo. And I mean, yeah, I need to, I need to compile some kind of book or something from a bass player's point of view of, of the drummers that I've come in contact with because it would be quite a list to brag about. Oh, dude, that sounds super interesting too, because if you could somehow translate these different styles of these guys into some way that everybody would understand, like this is the the shit that I've been dealing with my fucking career. Dude. <laughs> I got a question. Like just, for, just for like a fun, just jam stylistic, nothing serious. Just what's like your fun perception like of like like the difference of jamming with like Sean or or Gene like like the style the difference of like playing with him the feel hmm well that's kind of tough um well I guess I could say right away the two things that were with Sean I definitely followed him Sean was the creative bomb that I locked to where with Gene, he's a very, very aware drummer. I could play something different the second time and he'll pick up on it. You know, a lot of drummers play what they play. They're, they're set and they go forward and you either catch on or you fall off. With Gene, he's very aware. And like I said, if I change something, he's aware of it. And if I change something to something he likes he'll change what he's doing to accent that. Mm -hmm. And so not that Gene's following me, but there's a, a yin and yang there between us to where I realize, and I've gotten us both in trouble, not only in the death lineup, but with Testament also, to where I could be fucking around playing some funny shit and Gene will follow me into the darkness <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because it's interesting and he is aware and he knows what's going on and he hears something and I could take him. Yeah. And, um, and I have kind of a, you know, a, a devil side to me where I'll improvise into the abstract and I'll take Gene there. And, um, mm -hmm. yeah, and we've gotten chewed out by Chuck on tour and, um, the Testament guys have mentioned, you know, like we realize you guys are very creative rhythm section, but you know, you got to hold it together and stuff. So <laughs> as a result of that, um, Gene has told me that he, you know, in his inner monitors, he doesn't, he doesn't put me on there. Because uh, 
you know, he has that kind of. You have too much of an influence on him. Yeah. He's scared of what you're going to make him do. Dude. <laughs> the base is on timeout, basically. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm always in the dog house. Well, that's so. fucking, dude, that's, that's, that's um, really cool nothing that I would be very proud of, though, to, to find yeah. one, two, you know, other musicians that you can just vibe with that way so you said you said basically sean was like you but opposite right he was like the leading kind of like creative thing so gene was like the one that would adapt sean was like the one you're like just trying to stay up with his fucking yeah yeah me and sean's stuff locked because i knew it in and out and i catered the direction of where i was going to to interlock with sean's stuff you know if if i dropped out of there Sean would still play what he's playing, you know, where with Gene, like I said, if, if there was, he, he's got 50 antenna all on fucking scanner alert. And if he hears something that that's cool, that makes him go, Oh shit, I could join that and do this over here. And, you know, and build this up, he's likely to do that. So um, if, if you leave Gene to his own, he'll go straight forward. He'll do that shit. But, he will flex towards what's mm-hmm. going on where Sean was. I, but it, it wasn't like Sean was rigid either though. I mean, he, Sean was just, he had a better discipline because on the, on the later years when we were doing death to all, when it was a little less serious and obviously the boss wasn't there. Um, I, I could coerce him into doing some bad shit with me for fun. You know, a little length, little language between bass and drums that, you know, not many people pick up on, but we get a good laugh, well, inside laugh, you know. And yeah. but with Gene, it's way too easy, you yeah. know. And and <laughs> same same example while we're doing the death to all stuff in later years, you, you know, you watch a testament concert online, that's straight as an arrow, you know. Gene's playing, mm-hmm. you know, testament to the books, yeah, yeah. And then you watch a death to all concert, and it's loose and. You know, almost every time between songs, if I just play a couple, three, four notes of some familiar riff, it could be Jimi Hendrix or Opeth or Slayer or any random thing I play, immediately Gene jumps in. I mean, it's yeah. like it's yeah. like a fish hook. Just bam, I got him every time. You guys so, just did a death, death to all kind of or kind of like a Chuck thing over in Florida like two days ago, right? Three days ago. Just got back, yeah. In yeah, fact, I've been kind of just yeah. hanging out in my own end of the house to make sure that that's right, acclimating. I remember we had a we had a exhumed on, and uh, Matt Harvey was on, Matt. and he was he was talking about like uh, freaking out to play with you guys, like just yeah. like you know having the ultimate like you know like nerd metal like fuck dude like got Steve over here I got fucking you know like all these people around him that like he's always looked up to as as a James kid and stuff Murphy, James Murphy and everything, and he was like. He was just all like, oh, like, and then fucking, uh, he was saying, and then that you would kind of bust his balls a little bit. He was like, I look over and like, he would like, Steve was like, kind of bust my balls. And I get more nervous and blah, blah, blah. And like, uh, I was, I was <laughs> cracking up in the story. Imagine yeah. being Matt. You're on stage with all those guys. Well, I mean, also, you know, you've been through everything. And he so did, it's he, like, Matt did the vocals too, right? Yeah. He was, yeah. Chubs. And he was, he was a late addition. So he had to crash course and he pulled that shit off. Yeah. The reason I broke his balls is because he, he stepped up to the fucking plate and did a great job. Hell yeah. You know, you don't, you don't break someone's balls who need the work. You, 
you help them along. You, you know, yeah. you're you just keep them. Them. breaking balls is kind of just keeping them at the place that you already know they're at. You're just, breaking <laughs> you no, know? Matt, Matt definitely earned uh, all props because he, like I say, he learned in a short amount of time and he did a great job fucking, you know, and, and I've seen that role filled by, by Matt and um, Charles Elliott. And we bring our kid Max with us everywhere. And, um, mm-hmm. and different people have stepped up and done it. And, and it's tough because, you know, Chuck is the icon and every album has a different lineup and it's not a, it's not about the different lineups. It's about Chuck, but the ex members are here to hold that up. So it's like, who's going to play Chuck's part mm-hmm. and whoever does it is under extreme scrutiny by the crowd because you know, the, the audience is watching somebody, you know, trying to be Chuck. Now, none of these guys, tried to be chuck they just tried to do the part as good as they can and it's tough because people are like oh it's not fucking death without chuck it's like yeah no shit we know it's not death without chuck we're not trying to be death without chuck we're just trying to play the song with somebody young in there interpreting it the best they can yeah and so it's real tough and so someone like matt that can project a voice that sounds vaguely familiar and play really you know very similar to Chuck and, and same thing with Max. I mean, it's Max has no idea, but I think he's the, some kind of groupie child of Chuck accidentally or something. He's so <laughs> the reincarnate. He's so accidentally similar to it. I mean, Max wasn't even old enough to really watch Chuck. So he has no clue, but wow, all day long on tour, we just keep tripping how many different things Max does accidentally that remind us of Chuck. He's did Max uh, play in cynic too. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. That guy's insane. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I don't think he recorded. I think it was a tour. Yeah. Musician. Yeah. What do you guys uh, think he, about that new Cynic record? I fucking love it, dude. Yeah, I fucking I haven't heard it yet. I still you, have yet to get around to hearing it. I mean, that obviously, like, it's not focused. It Nothing's ever going to be focused. But from front to back, I had a great fucking time listening to it, dude. So I, 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 it's almost getting close to my album of the year thing if I keep listening to it. Do it. Dude do it yeah. man who cares that was hard for paul man he had yeah you know, yeah dude multiple totally. losses yeah no crazy yeah that's insane really no it's, it's definitely different it's got like a, it's got a different style to it with the vocals mainly is what i noticed they're kind of like buried he's, he's kind of like but also it could be like a mm-hmm. you know you know you know paul probably could be like some some message that he's trying to portray that he's like you know buried of the loss of his friends or you know I've what i mean like really thought of cynic vocals being a main part of the band though you know it's like even though there is vocals i'm always drawn to listening to the music more it's just kind of like the vocals become like an addition and they're great but i'm just saying like yeah, well, and we'll tell Paul that on the tour with fucking Cannibal Corpse when '93 or whatever, when he had to fucking do vocoder stuff in front of right before fucking Chris Barnes went on stage. I would have been like the one of three guys in that crowd that would have been like, "Fuck yeah!" That was dude. a cool tour, man. They brought Dana on; she was playing keyboard and doing the yeah. vocals. Yeah, sweet little petite blonde girl doing the brutals, and Paul's over there doing robot voice. And they played at Berkeley <laughs> Square, and I was yep. hanging out. My the brother hotel. was there. It's My an brother was there. Show, dude. It's an infamous. My brother was hanging at the hotel. There while they were getting ready and there was a little earthquake it was the first time yep. all those floridians felt that earthquake remember that that's Damn. no my brother was there so my brother was on acid he was with his <laughs> uh with his drummer and he was just like tripping his balls off watching 
and uh yeah all of a sudden the earthquake hit and shit and he just like fucking that's the story he tells me it's like a one of those like dad stories i hear like because i'm like you know 37 he's 45 46 something like that so it's one of those stories that he always pulls out just like dude we were tripping and then fucking an earthquake hit and well you know (laughs) we're watching cynic and like people were like were people booing cynic i definitely don't remember that okay because i remember like he was saying something about like because there was the death metal audience that wasn't ready for that kind of a thing and then they have like i would have been that's what matt used to say from decrepit matt used to say that yeah yeah he was uh attendee of that show so i wasn't yeah it's kind of funny i i i went to my like my rehearsal studio that i practice at and i have a room um and it was like i don't know a couple months ago and i just like i was like on a weekend and i heard this band like like kind of playing some death riffs and i'm like that's pretty cool and all this and then all of a sudden like they're just going right into just playing death songs like all sick and i'm just like what the hell and i like knock on the door and i go in there and uh they're playing like all this kind of shit and i'm like dude what you, what's up and they're like over oh, a death cover band and we're called like muerte mm. yeah Spanish. yeah yeah <laughs> and like they're like a san diego bass like yeah death cover band yeah and they just but dude they're sick like the guitar player shreds like yeah it's like okay so play something and i like filmed it and they played trapped in a corner and just nailed the solos he played like all this i was just like holy shit yeah he sent it to all of us i was like what the fuck is he, damn he, they're nailing he plays in some band with like R- ripper owens who is in judas priest uh what's this Rick. band um it's like like a few different singers that are like it's like a power metal thing yeah i forgot what it's called the tremors oh, i forgot what it's called dude um but yeah, he's a shredder, dude. I was like, what? He's like playing all the like solos like on that From song. San Diego? Perfectly. Hmm. He plays in like all these bands. Yeah. But I was like, what? And it was like pretty cool. <laughs> well, dude, I actually, like, I love death. Let's go. I was going to say death. shout out to Matt Harvey one more time. He's a previous guest of this podcast. Oh, yeah. We had an exhumed episode and, and he's got the gruesome project, which is fucking mm-hmm. Fuck yeah. totally oh, yeah. in the vein of all that early death stuff. And then he comes through on this this well so it wasn't gruesome though so what was the project called that he was performing in spiritual Um, healing spiritual healing was it oh and the last weekend yeah they were called uh their their line was called living monstrosity living monstrosity so yeah yeah and And, uh, the one we were in the we were called symbolic (laughs) so who's we who was in your lineup um me and the bass player who played on Symbolic, his name's Kelly Conlon. Nice. Awesome. And um, Bobby Coble from Symbolic. Um, Shannon Ham from Sound of Perseverance and Control Denied. Those were the OGs. And then we had um, Max, who we do Death to All with. He was there. And then the guy who kind of perpetuates the tribute band called Symbolic um, from Columbia, his name's Leonardo or Leo. He he's he was switching off with Max doing Chuck's parts, guitar and vocals, and um, Gene wasn't super available, and they were trying to figure out what drummer could fill in. And I reached back in my bag of tricks and pulled out my buddy Dirk from uh, Dirk for Beer and he plays in Megadeth now. Nice. And he, he was in Soil Work for years, um, played an old thrash band from France called Scarve, or is it? Well, he's Belgian, but yeah, maybe the band's French. But you I know, saw those videos. Scarve. I actually, Scarve. I've heard of that band. Scarve. Yeah. Um, Dirk 
he's fucking alien dude he he learned all of the the sets that encompass sean and gene and richard's parts and you know and it's funny because he filled in for testament when gene was busy one time and he and i told him after the show i said dude i'm sorry i didn't look back one time like it felt so brutally comfortable I forgot it was a different drummer. Like he wow, was so dude. dead on. And Damn. we've done some odd recordings together. We did an album uh, with a Argentine a guy from Argentina called Gioda. And we did a recording back in uh, 2010. A uh, buddy of ours, Mike from Netherlands. The album's called Anatomy of Eye. So me and Dirk got some chemistry, some history together and stuff. And I know him. He's He's the ultimate chameleon. And I told when he agreed to do it, and I was talking to the guys about how he's going to play Sean and Gene and Richard stuff. I said, watch out for this guy. He's going to end up playing those guys parts so well, you're going to think it's them. Like that's, he just, he's amazing, you know, and not that Dirk doesn't have his own identity, his own creativity. He definitely has all that. He's, Mm -hmm. he's his own drummer, but when it's time for him to learn something, it's scary how fucking dead on. Wow. He learns it, man. That's yeah. that's a cerebral fucking advantage that not many people have. He's he he yeah. was the he was the talk of the gig for us, man. He was so amazing. It's calling him a chameleon is a per- perfect thing. I'm thinking like, yeah, just a guy can just sit into any throne, whatever band's playing, and he can adapt Dude. to reenact. Oh, and and three drummers that are you know they're not yeah, just dude. kicking back playing rock yeah. beats man they're playing know, some shit. <laughs> yeah so yeah he did an amazing amazing job everyone was so psyched to watch him pull that shit off so so precise like all the all the neil pert type fans that are in the crowd knowing all the roles and little splash hits they were just oh yeah he's on he's just knocking it down you saying i'm sorry i didn't look back i'm like Oh, dude. So you guys really do have even that connection live, like the drummer and the bass player have to look at each other. <laughs> oh, dude. Point. Oh, me and Gene are, I mean, me and Gene go back to the mid 80s, man. What Sadis and Dark Angel became kind of, you know, Dark Angel took, uh, no pun intended, but Dark Angel took Sadis under their wing, showed us, you know, they were a little bit, you know, more advanced and, and they, they requested us as support many times and we bonded right away. So when me and Gene were reunited in Florida to do individual, we were like already old buddies yeah. and then just years and years and years. And we've been, you know, trucking along a Testament for a fucking ever. And we have that, that untangible chemistry that just totally dude. Just, it's like the fucking Jacob's ladder in the air. Just somehow. I, I even recently watched an interview with you and him on the uh, Megadeth cruise. It was, it was like a 15 minute thing or whatever. You guys were just <laughs> chilling, having cocktails and talking shit or whatever. And, and I was just watching your guys' chemistry. I'm like, yo, like if any drummer and bass player want to have a chemistry, this is the chemistry you want to have. Dude, it's amazing. And, you know, talking about, Hey, look, you know, looking back, me and Gene will have full blown conversations in the middle of the song. I mean, he's back there playing and he's doing rolls and hitting shit. And I'm fucking sticking on with Peterson's rhythms. And we're like, yeah, 
Oh, so what'd you have in catering? Oh, was that pretty good? Yeah. You, caught, <laughs> yeah, you know, make yeah. sure grab some of that after the show. Oh, it's really good. Oh, thanks buddy. <laughs> yeah. You know, like, I mean, it's like auto autopilot. Yeah. Yeah. And we're yeah. just like drifting off while, while our bodies are playing. We're just like floating away, talking about something. Nah, that's exactly that's how, that's how me and uh, Dan from uh, our band. We'd like, that would be our inside joke. We're like, we'd start whispering because like super, technical crazy like all these odd type signatures but like we had it like kind of like muscle memory at a certain point and we would just whisper like funny things in each other's ears like hey dude so like what's for like what are we getting burritos after what's going on you know like and just like watch him <laughs> smile and like try to hold together and like then he'd be like i don't know like carne asada well you know like and just like going back and forth it's like a funny yeah. one thing that actually i don't know if you've ever encountered this and it's for me it's a thing with in band practice when you know you've nailed it a million times and you're practicing when you fuck up, I think it's fucking hilarious. I, I think it's like one of the funniest things ever when someone like makes a dumb mistake and like it's like on a dumb riff and like I'll make mm-hmm. eye contact and we'll sometimes have to stop a song because we're laughing so hard. Like mm. just like something about like the awkwardness of like you messed that up <laughs> like and like you kind of make eye contact and like, I don't know. So, it's always I been a that, thing. Uh, I mean, maybe it's too much weed. No, it is a lot of weed and just all, all of us are just like, come on, dude. That's what it is. It's if anybody fucks up, but nobody really fucks up an odious morning. Well, it wouldn't camera. be like it wouldn't be like, dude, you fucked up. It'd be like, you fucked that up. And then we start like smiling at each other and like, all right, don't look at me, dude. I have to finish. Well, there's it. different kind of fuck up. There's fuck up that you're unprepared and that frustrates everyone because then you're yeah. worried that, you know, and then there's the fuck ups like what? why would i do that there like i know yeah, exactly. my shit and i just yeah. brain farted and something came <laughs> exactly. out exactly. yeah so th- yeah those are definitely funny yeah but especially yeah. when yeah. people are watching you know you try to yeah. pull it off like i meant to do that you know exactly <laughs> so, yeah, i'm I improvising like, I yeah. he was being an ambitious uh the professor <laughs> the professor had to leave he uh he's in bangladesh uh, yeah, and uh we had him for the whole time though, but he just he had to go. So he was messaging me. I was like, "Just go, man." Just we should probably you, start wrapping so we can get. Let's do a oh, no let's get a part two. We could do you, part two. You pulled parachutes. So. We're like at three and a half hours. No, right? we, well, you're just you're forcing Steve into a part two. I mean, I was already trying earlier. <laughs> it's our, what, when did we do this? We started at seven something. 740 and he's doing math we right haven't now. even made it yeah we haven't even made it to three hours yet yes dude, we have dude we're still yes, in we like have. 91 we're still in like 91 guys. <laughs> that's what i'm saying this <laughs> guy is have you seen this guy's yeah. wikipedia have you seen this wikipedia that we can well like, let's be a five-hour episode dude, if, 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 uh, hey I'm, I'm ready to go i'm i mean it's up to him not us <laughs> I know. i'm down how you feeling man what's going on we're we're at Three and a half hours. No, we're not. It's two and a half hours. Oh, Here's an empty two. I empty. gotta be I gotta fill up too, dude. Steve's ready, dude. Fuck you guys. Time. Just quit being a Steve on this. Is... <laughs> <laughs> we lost the professor and everybody just lost their shit, dude. Like now we just wanna do, we just wanna respect your time. We don't want to Yeah, yeah. Like... Like, fuck us. It's all about you, Steve. What's going yeah, on? Yeah, like if you want to How you feeling, man? I'm good. What's on the slate? I mean, are we are we heading to are we rounding third? We're I mean, we can do whatever third? we can do whatever. I've just usually like when we have guests for this long, usually they start doing like the slope the slow blink and they're just no, like, all right, like what? I know. Let, I think we're still. No, that's your the, host. That's that's uh okay. I, it's I'm not fucking me, down. dude. I'm down. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You're getting a little Asian over there, but I'm good. I'm, Am I? I'm wide awake. <laughs> oh yeah, your your eyes are right, shut, dude. dude. Here we go, dude. I'm it's fucking right? down too, right. dude. Put on sunglasses, dude. All right, so. Keep going, keep going. All right. 
All right, Man, so what's your so, favorite? Okay. Color. No. So, okay, so the individual <laughs> thought pattern shit. So that was like uh that was like your round two with them. And then where do you go from there? Like after that, you're did you tour you toured that record, right? Yep, the whole cycle all the way to the end. I was yeah, I couldn't make the human cycle because sadist plans and stuff. And that's where Scotty Carino came in to fill in for me, but when we were finishing up recording individually, we went out to lunch and Chuck just said, man, I have an idea because we have a festival tour, which is a festival tour is usually short in nature because you hit a few really big shows. And then you just, you know, it's not like full of tons of shows strung together. So he was like, you know, this, it's not a big demand. It's, it's going out to Europe and playing for a couple of weeks, but it's, it's not a huge full-blown tour full of dates so i have this idea that you know you guys would do it with me now obviously andy the rock came in and laid a few solos he didn't do any he was a very quick guest on it very important but very quick guest on the album so there was never any idea that he would you know play on stage or even play a complete song with us he just did his solos so we knew we would have to get a live guitar player but he said if me and gene at least could do the first run because the festival tour was occurring before the individual uh album release so he really because we're working in the studio he had no live band you know um, paul and sean are history and and he's like can you just go do this european run with me you know, basically just saying like, look, I'm stuck in the studio with you guys and I don't know what to do for a live musician. And of course, we were both like, fuck, yeah, we want to go play with death. That'd be awesome. And so we just we did the festival tour and I think we played. I know we played one song for sure from the album, but it was mostly human and back because of how it was before the release date. Nobody's going to know what it is, but we would always say like, hey, we just got out of the studio here's a new one for you. And it was so obvious when we did it because then everybody just stood there like, Whoa, I never heard this obviously. But, um, but we, I think we increased it to two, maybe three, you know, we're, we're starting to feel comfortable about it. And because of that, we were like, man, those are fun to play live. So when the album came out, you know, me and Gene were like, of course we're going to stick with this. This is fun, you know, big crowds and, and Dark Angel was pretty much inactive at that time. And, and Vision of Misery for Sadis is kind of pretty much ran its cycle. You know, it was kind of quick. And um, that's when Roadrunner started flushing out bands, cleaning house. And Sadis was one of the bands that got cut. So it was a good void in time for me to just commit to death. And so we stuck around all year and and uh, did all that touring. And, man, it was great. And oh, then. Yeah, um, dude. And then it was time to start over for a new chapter. And he had a big batch of new songs. And he wrote the first song that was going to be on Symbolic at my house in Antioch um, with a drum machine. That was crazy. Just me and him and a drum machine. Fuck. And then, uh, then a couple of months later, you know, he's got a bunch of more songs prepared and Gene's out there. And I came out there. I had a busted up finger. It actually wasn't a broken bone. It was a dislocated finger. I zigzagged my finger bones and um i had a big brace on and stuff and i went out there and of course it's hard to play with that shit on there and it was a tough 
tough session, you know. Um, and I was also right on the verge. My wife was eight or nine months pregnant with our first kid. And Chuck was ready to sign a new contract with Roadrunner, book studio time. And and it just didn't work out. So mm-hmm. I had I had I was there in the preparation phase, you know, songwriting, pre-production. But when it came time to book the studio, it wasn't to be. So he found Kelly and they went ahead and did that. And um, Kelly didn't last very long. He was already booted by the first first live run. And he got um, he got one of the road crew to actually sit on our base. Brian Benson, who tours a lot with Cannibal Corpse now as a guitar tech, he, he finished out the touring cycle, just, you know, thumping on the low E with the volume on a half. <laughs> <laughs> and so when the new album idea came around, he called me back up. Same thing. I go to Florida. I'm involved in the songwriting, arranging and pre-production stuff. And this is when Richard's new in the group and Shannon's the new guitar player. And, and, um, yeah, and I'm on the pre-production. There's some bonus tracks on the reissue of Sound of Perseverance. You could hear my early ideas with those, but um, same result, different reason. So studio time comes around, and and um, he wanted to go right from the studio to a bunch of touring, and it was a huge, big block of time, and I was working full-time just buying a new house and doing life, and I, I told him I, I'm not prepared to leave a job to tour with death, I had to keep my job. And I said, I could go sporadically, but I couldn't commit to the full, you know, load of all the touring. And Chuck said it was really important for him to have the four guys in the band photo in on the album photo to be on the stage. Cause he was trying to erase this bad reputation of how he went through so many members all the time. And, and so since I couldn't commit long-term to all the road work and stuff that he, he wanted to get a guy. So he found Scott Clendenin in that, who had worked with uh, some of the control denied guys and stuff. So, so yeah, it was like um, ever since human, I was in, out, in, 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 out, out, in, out. And so went back and forth like that. And then even after the sound of persevering touring cycle was over and Chuck removed himself as a singer, got a new vocalist and changed the name of the band. Boom. I'm back in again. So yeah, a lot of, a lot of history there with me and, and Chuck, but um, totally to me, it's like one continuous timeline, you know, because mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. we were always talking on the phone and I was like his go-to, you know, when you would get a local guy to do the tour or whatever and didn't work out, boom, he called me back, you know, and it kind of repeated like that a few times. So when Chuck was like, you know, like nearing the end of life cycle of death, like what so he had an idea for control denied was it like something that he had always envisioned himself doing as far as stylistically or was it just like all right we need to end death i want to change this around or something that he always wanted to do he got really bored of that vocal style i don't know exactly when but when he had to go out into the booth and sing during the individual thought pattern session he was already burned on it yeah mm-hmm. he just you know me and him and gene are recording all these cool riffs and he, he's just like man we're we're kind of like the rush of death metal he goes this is heavy but it's also so creative and then scott burns engineer tell him all right chuck go slap some vocals on there he hang his head and go oh man 
time to ruin my own music. You know, we're like, what? Fuck, you know, you're the godfather, dude. This is your thing. He's like, ah, I'm just, you know, I don't know. So all the way back then, he was already souring on it. And you could tell because after that album, his vocal style really, really changed. And, you know, he got, he just, he wasn't really a huge fan of the genre that he was a big part of creating. Yeah. He just wasn't a fan of it. He, he looked, he, I mean, look, this is the singer when he finally disbanded death and, and basically got the same lineup with a different vocalist in a new name, the singer he wanted was Warl Dane. Oh, that, for everyone who just passed away. RIP. Yeah, right? He died on. No, no. World. Oh, no, World Dance. Oh, I'm sorry. That's a, I saw anniversary. It's 2017. Sorry. Yeah. Right. But, but, he, yeah. but he did die on the same day as Chuck, you know, <laughs> years difference. But yeah, that's so yeah. strange. They share the same death day. But um, trippy. But if it worked out and World wanted to do it, he just didn't want to remove himself from anything that Nevermore was doing. But those two guys, they got along great. They were very, very tight friends, very emotionally bound those two guys and if if plans worked out that's who chuck envisioned his ultimate sound was his riffs with warl dane singing that was you know it was no secret he wanted warl and warl couldn't do it um yeah so um his his demo tapes that when he you know freshly writes a song and puts puts it all together for people to hear his ideas Chuck would sing melodically mm-hmm. and, you know, say like, okay, this is me. Obviously we're going to get so-and-so, which became Tim Amar, became the singer of Control 9. But I have recordings of Chuck singing like that. And it's pretty good. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he obviously has a lot of years, you know, using a microphone. <laughs> he's a sing, he's a vocalist. So you could tell he's good, but his vocal tonal quality is just you know not he just he he didn't develop that that melodic power metal style over all those years of doing brutal death metal to where he knew it was fun and it was cool but it it wasn't convincing it wasn't serious it wasn't the pro level that he wanted but he was right there almost in fact uh the the track on perseverance uh painkiller the priest cover that's chuck screaming yeah you know he's that's he's, a good cover too yeah i mean he reached up out of that uh, the old death stuff and he's up doing fucking halford which was you know obvious one of his favorite singers yeah but uh yeah he really tried to get out of that death metal hole for many years and it took him and and he knew that if he just had a different vocal style under the band name death that the fan base would just leave so he he knew it needed to have a different name under it. So so th- my thing is uh, we're always striving for something as uh, artist or musician, and and uh, most of us never really get to what we're looking for, you know. And and you kind of just touched on that, like Chuck was looking for something he could almost get there, and then he but he needs somebody else to really like throw that 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 extra on it to where it makes it better for him. And that's what became control denied. But Mm -hmm. I'm thinking like, is it 
does it really have to be somebody else that comes in and gives you what you're looking for? Can somebody really like hit what they're trying to look for? You know, as a musician, we're always striving. Like what keeps us going is that we're not hitting the bullseye. Right. Sure. You know, that's, that's the friendly ego. You know, ego is not always a bad word. You know, your ego propels you to perform and want to do well. That's your judgment of your own self. And, um, you know, he was striving to improve and evolve and get out of a, a genre that was just getting very repetitious and getting very saturated. Um, but he didn't have the confidence. And he also had the vision to know that he wasn't going to just throw himself out there and just switch vocal style and accept, you know, expect everyone to just, be cool with it. Mm. You know, he wanted to do it with a vocalist that had some miles on him that, that knew what he was doing. And I think he was also kind of looking forward to stepping away from the mic and just, just being a guitarist, mm -hmm. you know, because his vocal heroes like Rob Halford, Bruce Dickinson and such, they were just singers. They just fucking twiddled a mic stand around. They weren't playing guitar and his guitar heroes were shred guys that didn't sing vocals. So he, he didn't really idolize anybody who did both and he was doing both. So I think he was looking forward to just getting away from the fucking microphone and just jamming, just being that sideman that just shred. Of course he would be the visionary who wrote everything as well. But you know, I think that's the reason why I'm, that's the reason why I'm in the band with these guys right here is because Dan, the uh, original vocal uh, guitarist and vocalist, he wanted to step away from vocals and focus on his guitar. And we were friends and I ended up taking up the vocal duties because Dan wanted to sit back and end up making such better odious mortem material from when he had to do vocals, right? Like once he had the vocals out of his, out of his, uh, whatever, you know, he had just the guitars to pay attention to. And, and I guess like those, having those two things, those multiple things, like you're never going to excel completely in one or the other. So you got to take one or the other. Also too, like, it's gotta be one of those things where like you're, you're singing and you're playing guitar. You can't really like, I don't know. I mean, this might be thrown out there. You can't really have that much fun. You know what I mean? Like you can't go out there and just be like, and go out and like run around the stage and like just play guitar and run around. You can't do You'd be focused on vocals. You can't like run. You can't go to the stage left, stage right. You're stuck in the middle. You have, you yeah. basically have no place to roam. The front just man like, that does the solos as well. You're like, yeah, yeah. yeah. You mm, have to do yeah. all that shit. You have to do you're like all that's like another maybe after a while. Like if you fuck something up a couple times or do something, you're like, that's just a stressor. I just want to run around and just focus on having fun and not like having to yeah, like, it's, like, it's kind of like it's the workload outweighs the glory. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You yeah. know, and if you ever watch the old uh, death shows online, you'll see the gap between songs is agonizing. You know, Chuck would go back to the drum riser and towel off and pull his hair out from underneath his strap, adjust everything, drink water, catch his breath brutal felt like an hour go by before we start the next song and you know this is the time where you say all right how's everyone doing tonight you know all that and but that's chuck's job and he's over he's over there 
you know, catching his breath of the drum riser with his ass to the crowd. So, um, yeah, he was getting sick of, of the, the heavy workload and makes and sense on top it of the vocal sense. style. So he was looking forward to having a lead singer who could hold his own and give Chuck a break and just be able to shred on guitar. I'm it's actually like, of the, the, I'm the type of person that would just still just sit there during that silence and just wait for the next song though, you know, and it would still be an awesome fucking death gig. I don't necessarily need banter. Banter is good, but it's like, I don't know if I'm just there. If I was to be there for a death show, I would just sit and be quiet. Uh, Cynic sit there, be quiet, do some yoga. Yeah, yeah, they'll make you bend. And he, uh, Paul made us do yoga. I you know, yeah, I, yeah, I did yoga. At Slim's, dude. I did yoga at <laughs> Slim's. I was at that show, too. Yeah. At a fucking metal oh, yeah. show, dude. Oh, yeah. No, that's cool. Thank I mean, I, yeah, I get it. I get why he would want to fucking, like, get rid of that workload and just, like, have, you know, I don't know, I'm drunk. Yeah, he, no, no, I know what you're saying. He could have that time to go take a breath, fix his hair, take a sip of water while there's somebody else doing the banter and getting that focus off of him. Yeah. It, it kills a vibe a little, you know, when the crowd's just sitting there and the, the seconds are rolling off, they turn into minutes and then people start, you know, the peanut gallery comes alive, starts shouting shit. And yeah, it's a little tough. You know, you don't, you don't need to chat up the crowd in between every song, but if it's silence, man, it's tough. And it would, that was the tough part about jamming with them, but there's nothing any of us could have said because we're not screaming vocals and shredding leads and playing the main rhythm part the whole night. I mean, he had a huge workload and, you know, I'm just a fucking bass player. I couldn't say nothing, but you know, it was tough. And yeah. So all, all that, what we've been talking about, that all, evolves into how he was steering the direction of his band and, and control denied was, you know, especially the transition from sound of perseverance to the control. And it's the same guys. Yeah. So you can see that it was strictly about the sound. I mean, he, tr- he used the same lineup. So there was no devious thing about getting new people or what it was just simply I don't want to sing anymore. And that was it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Definitely. So, um, but so you guys execute that album, the, with the control denied moniker, same lineup of sounds, new vocalist. How, how, what's the reception in the beginning? I have no idea. You never paid attention. No, I mean, it was, the album came out when Chuck was sick. So there was no, 98 was the last time Chuck played live. We recorded Control Tonight in 99, uh, came out, you know, shortly after. Um, most of 2000, or wait, maybe none. Yeah, that's right. That's right. That's right. 99. So most of the time between 99 and 2000, he's battling health, trying to just walk, you know, and, but after, one he was doing various treatments like he would go into a a certain treatment and they would tell him like this is incurable you only have x amount of time we can't do nothing well he wouldn't take no for an answer and he'd go find some alternate treatment alternative treatment i mean and 
sometimes the results made an improvement. There was a point where they had this weird, I don't know, you went to Texas and had this X knife or something, and they took part of the tumor out and it alleviated a lot of the pressure on his brainstem, and he got some of his mobility back, and he was feeling great. And he busted out a whole new batch of songs, and the music also kind of alleviated a lot of his, you know, just <laughs> the, the heaviness of facing his mortality and everything. Wow. And And but he was very productive and we were chatting on the phone quite often about the plans of the new record and how since he the treatment took him away from the touring cycle of the first control tonight he wanted to you know put out the second control tonight and do a big tour but he wanted to go out as death first as a death farewell and bring the control tonight singer to do the last three four songs of the set mm -hmm with the new songs and have a, a physical transition on stage every night to, you know, people in the crowd could witness death turning into control denied. And he had this whole plan and, and we were blocking time verbally. We were like, yeah, we're going to do the death farewell with some control denied at the end. And then immediately go out as a full control denied tour. And he had these big plans and everything. And then this was in 2001. I had plans to go in the springtime to get my bass done over there because they had finished the drums, I think in December of 2000. So yeah, early 2001, he's finished, he's working on guitar and stuff. And then right as we're about to book my ticket, he's like, um, hold off, you know, plans might be changed a little. I'm not feeling that great. And then that summer and fall just, oh, she, you know, we lost him in December, obviously. So he, but at the beginning of that year, he was feeling better. And, um, and we almost we almost got to it, but just missed it. There's a partial recording floating out there and stuff. But but yeah, I mean, he had all these big aspirations to tour, and and in his mind, it was up and up and up and more and more. You know, damn, just yeah, through yeah. his yeah own mortality, and his, he's literally going down. Still wants to do stuff and put stuff mm -hmm. out. It's like almost like yeah, you know, he like, never stopped. I mean, no, he went. He went out fighting, man. He he fought the healthcare system. He, like I said, every time a doctor told me he was incurable, he said "fuck off" and went found a different doctor. Yeah, and, and same with the music. You know, he just continuously writing, continuously planning all the way to the end. Damn. Yeah, dude. I mean, it totally makes sense with a guy that's that prolific, you know, and all the prolific musicians as yourself and everybody else, like you never stop dude there's there's really no reason to and there's like, a lot of want... there's a lot of beauty in a guy that started a band named death that's facing death in the face and that's still fighting to you know to still go you know what i mean like mm -hmm. like i don't know something there's something prolific about that you know um yeah it's huge all right so I, but I mean, I love Chuck and I love death, RIP, all that shit, but we're talking to Steve. So like after all that, like that, that's crazy. That happens to you. What the fuck happens now? Well, he was, I, he was still alive and doing pretty decent. Um, I think he was just going to acupuncture before he found out that was a huge tumor. When I told him I got, hired by testament and i remember he just quickly said well that's a good gig they're a big band <laughs> so kind of had his blessing but that was a big transition for me you know it's like not that testament is mainstream or pop or any of that but they're definitely not underground 
And mm-hmm. that's where I spent all my time working on all these bands we talked about and all these people we talked about are all underground musicians and, you know, van tours and clubs and demos and all that crap. That was my world. And Testament invites me up there and all of a sudden it felt like I was an Iron Maiden junior. It was like they have accountants and they have professional management and, you know, it was like, whoa, this, it's, it's a tight business, you know, and, and what, what was a very respectable band? Like I said, they had MTV videos, they were on FM radio and, you know, I wasn't really ever a really big fan of the band or that style. So when I got the call to see if I was interested, I was like, well, you know, I didn't jump to a no answer, fortunately, but it was hard to jump to a yes answer. So I just agreed with Eric to go out and listen to what they had. And we sat in his Ford Ranger with a cassette tape and he didn't tell me anything about it. He just said, here's the new material. And it was just a little, you know, boom box recording and rehearsal room things. So you could, you could hear the, the talk and the feedback. It was clearly just a raw thing, but at least it had the music on it. And to me, Testament was like disciples of the watch and to return to serenity, you know? And I was like, well, let's see. Well, the cassette starts and it sounded like, you know, unused songs by Slayer. It was fast, brutal riffing with fucking badass drumming. And I was like, I was like, Eric turns it off. He goes, what do you think? And I was like, this is Testament (laughs) now. I was like, what the hell? You guys are heavy now. And he goes, you like it? And I go, dude. And he goes, well, what do you think? And I go, I mean, this in all compliment, dude it sounds like Slayer and that's killer. And he goes, you know, what's funny. Like, what? He goes, that's Slayer's drummer. <laughs> I was like, what? He goes, yeah. He goes, dude, Lombardo's going to be our new album. I go, okay, hold on. This is what new Testament sounds like. You got Dave Lombardo on drums and you want me to play the bass on this? I go, let me think about it. Okay. <laughs> I was like, yeah, I'm sold, in. man. I'm that, that was a much different Testament than I thought I was getting into. Totally. And, dude. Yeah, and and, and 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 like I was alluding to earlier, I probably used that word way too many alluding. Yeah, no, alluding's in your, your your word of the day today. It is my word of the day. I don't know <laughs> why. I don't know. I probably heard it on a documentary earlier. Um, <laughs> you could say but, as I touched upon previously, <laughs> as, I upon, <laughs> as I graced upon. <laughs> yeah. Uh, now I lost my fucking train of thought. What the fuck? Good. Are you talking about? Yeah, derailed yeah. it. Derailed the him. interview. <laughs> yeah. God I actually well eric peterson actually i worked at guitar center in sacramento for a long time or for a year and uh, eric peterson was a mainstay there like i sold like would, 50 grand worth of shit there oh yeah no he <laughs> was like custom guitars with like on the like artwork on the back of the neck and shit like that and we he actually he'd come judge contests we'd have he was super cool dude man i actually really appreciated that guy like i knew he you know testament's a humongous deal so i was like oh fuck like Eric's coming in, he was a super chill, like super nice guy. I've heard he's pretty um, strict on the music side. With uh, I heard, yeah. So okay, you're shaking your head. Okay, so I won't say by who, but no, I'm nodding. My head. <laughs> this is shaking. This is nodding. <laughs> nodding. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm nodding my vertically. head. Yes, he has a. You could say strict, but he has a very proven formula. He does not deviate from, and. Like I said, I came out of the underground to play with a band 
that has fucking those frames with the cover and the little fucking disc on the wall. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I, yeah. When yeah. I'm invited to do that shit, I don't fuck with the formula. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, exactly. I, I, I watch and learn. And so, yeah, big, big, big step up for me. Um, as big as death and iconic, brutally iconic. Brutally. As death is, Testament is the big step up. Totally, totally dude. Yeah, and and that's what I was gonna say earlier. The oh, gathering, got <laughs> I got it back, dude. The gathering as my first introduction to Testament. Yes, later on in their discography, going backwards, I realized that the gathering was one of those like resurgent aspects of their career to where they got that second wind of brutality and heaviness and speed and Dave Lombardo on drums, you on bass. And you're just like, this is the whole fucking package right here. Yeah. That what a great coincidence that that album came out at the, you know, towards the end of the nineties where a lot of metal bands, the mid nineties was like a desolation weird dry spell for metal Mm -hmm. you know very few bands maintained through that you know it was it was a big change in the world and you know a lot of stuff happened bad stuff happened in the mid 90s disrupting the whole growth of all the scenes that came from the 80s and it just 10 years later just like almost threatened to disappear and so you know, a lot of bands were reuniting. Death Angel got back together and Sadis even had a long dry spell. There was a, that Thrash of the Titans gig at, at the Maritime Hall. was It was almost like every band was reuniting just for that gig. And since then, they've carried on. And that was like a sign of like, you know, the, the Y2K coming up was like this breath of fresh air, like the fucking mid-90s is over. And so the the whole scene is coming out of just fucking drug induced slumber or hibernation period. But right on this, you know, cloud clearing and letting the scene come alive, Testament nails that album right there. And so their own personal slump is lightening up and it's riding the wave of all the fucking metal coming back strong as ever, you know, even Rob Halford had a solo band reunited with Priest in 2000, 2001. Bruce Dickinson on a solo career reunites with Maiden in 99, 2000. You know, everything was coming back together. The, the old school, Priest and Maiden, and then all the bands reuniting, the thrash bands getting back together. You know, it's almost like the 80s created it. It had this weird dive and then there was no one there to take the torch. And so after this long period of suffering, everyone just has this revival. Hi girl. Hi, you miss me. All right. She came back That's to awesome, check dude. on me. <laughs> I just yeah, saw your CD really collection like, real quick. I re- just, I really like the uh the uh um, Yeah, dude. T- look Titans of Creation collection, bro. Oh shit. God, <laughs> damn it. Hey, I'm a musician, man. <laughs> no, I lo- I did I just say it again? I want. I want. Oh, uh, you were looting. Are you looting? No, I, I stopped myself. I said Al, and then I stopped myself. But uh, I wish that I had that collection. I have over a thousand. I have over a thousand. But you got more than a thousand, bro. Just by showing me what you got. 
I think the rack holds three grand, and then I got shit all the time. I got shit yeah. up here. This this room's a mess. That's why I told you earlier I needed to put up a little backdrop. It's that's all fun. good, dude. But that's yeah. that's where I want my studio to be, dude. Just be yeah, yeah. or like Joel's uh, uh, dad's spot with VHSs, dude. He had a whole room. Oh, when I was a kid. <laughs> when I was a kid, and like, yeah, yeah. my dad had like the when we were a kid, we were on tour. We still went through. Oh, no, I was a kid, dude. Yeah, we were 21. still kids, yeah, yeah. but yeah. yeah, yeah. No, dude, that was actually from my, my my stepmom and my dad both combined their like VHS collections, and it was like a fucking blockbuster. It was Death like, Metal Kids <laughs> like, in yeah. New Mexico. What do we pick out of a room full of VHSs? Kindergarten Cop, dude. Yeah, <laughs> that's a good go to bed. That's a that's a bedtime one. We're going to bed. We're in it. You know, we're, we're and done. not only going to bed. Wait, didn't I pass out and you guys were like hitting me with a pillow and I didn't wake up? <laughs> I mean, that's happened a few times. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> I was gonna say though, that, like uh, I I like that Titans of Creation that the stuff you guys put out in 2020, like it's really good, dude. I was like listening to it. Uh, is that like first? You, song you're like about, Chris like, Farley. You're like Chris Farley, dude. Remember that album you put out? That was pretty cool. <laughs> oh yeah, I told you <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, dude. Seriously though, I appreciate that. We we yeah, it's like came, we came yeah. together like Brotherhood of the Snake that came out in 16, like. A lot of that was done, well, Eric wrote it all, and then a lot of it was transferred to us via files. Like, here's the new song, here's the new song. Yeah. But when we did Titans, we got um, Eric had big chunks of all the song. He he's the song writer. You know, he mm-hmm. he writes that shit. But it, it's different than just being handed the song. You know, here's the song, play it. Okay. Well, we we put our personality as much as we can within the Testament formula, but on Titans, it was great because he didn't have the songs finished. And we set up in the studio that was to be the same place to track seriously. So we had two, three weeks ahead of the real recording time to go over the songs and talk about arrangements and changing lengths of parts. And we felt, me and Gene felt way more involved. You know, Eric wrote the songs for sure, but it felt like being young in the garage, hashing out shit, high-fiving at the end of the night going, fuck, sounds badass now, mm-hmm. you know? And so it's a good feeling that you're shooting for always as a musician. Yeah. Dude. And we were, we felt involved and because of that. I think that the energy and the, and the chemistry mm-hmm. is evident on Eric's creations. You know, we didn't, we didn't change his stuff, but we influenced it big time. And knowing that the same mic set up and the same every like we didn't have to move or anything. And then like and we could, you know, record everything and listen and the next day, change it and stuff. And by the end of it, we're like, I think we got this shit, man. So let's just keep rolling. But now we're going for takes that are keepers and stuff. And so very different vibe than just, you know, three days in the studio knocking out, you know, you know, three yeah. four songs a day it was like we had weeks to work and rehash and yeah and so big difference between the last and they said that's the first time they carried over the same lineup between two albums it's the og you know mm-hmm. early early days with the, yeah. with the with the classic lineup so that was another bonus is to know that the five of us were yeah. locked in and, and repeating it and yeah man and it shows Sounds i mean good, songs dude. are fun to play they're fun to listen to the yeah. sound came off i mean and andy's recording yeah. still andy sneaks still from the gathering all the way sequentially all the way up and nothing yeah. changed same artist same everything so 
you know, there's something to be said about that loyalty too, to just hold the whole team together and improve within that without really so looking the, for a member change. Real, real quick though, is it the first song I think that's about like Heaven's Gate or something mm -hmm. like that? Yeah, and I was like, dude, I I like was I grew up like it was I know like, you're like, San Diego guy. It was you're like it was like around. ten miles from like where I grew up or something. Yeah, like I remember yeah. like children on the next like, level, man. They it, we. We got we got off the hook. We didn't have to act in a fucking band video. They did an animated version. Yeah. We were done. <laughs> you guys all I'll, I'll remember that Hill Bob's comment and like the. Are you the, talking the about Heaven's the Gate? cult shit? Yeah, yeah do that, that cult that, shit. That, that was like ten miles from where I grew up. Like, it was like the sneakers, uh, yeah, the Nike mass, sneakers. One? Yeah, the mass suicide shit. Oh, it was like a Rancho shit. Santa Fe. It was like. I mean, I went to high school like five. They miles. thought that there was like some aliens in the end of a comet that were coming by to pick them yeah. up. So it was yep. Hail Bop, right? Well, it was like like Jim Jones shit, like drink the Kool Aid, like. So what year, was, Casey? Was, what year was, what was a what mass year suicide? Year? Like a what year was it, Casey? Casey, what year was it? It was in the nineties. That's all I know. If it was ninety-seven, that's when that's when Hail Bob was in the sky. Mm -hmm. and it, was, it was probably yeah. around then. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah, so the idea, like yeah, it was school. a suicide cult. So the idea was that they were yeah. the only way they could transfer themselves to this mothership that was actually traveling behind this comet was to, yeah, advance to a different life form, which meant all committing suicide. And yeah, there's a there's a multi part uh, documentary on that very involved very very detailed. Or it's fucking scary. It wasn't like something that just sprung up with a bunch of dizzy people that were ready. I mean, this, this guy has been at it for decades and the people that agreed to do it, if you gave them their life back, they would do it again. They were sold yeah, and convinced and dude, it, so they were crazy. hardcore. What, what a, sa what a salesman dude. I actually, actually, uh, I actually have a question. So I see this picture everywhere and I'm relating it to what we're talking about right now. Um, Waco, Texas, that one dude that, is, is he playing there's a picture of him playing a chuck shoulder guitar you ever seen that the no. uh, i swear to god there's like might be might be fucking photoshop and i just might be falling for it but there's a picture of the you know the waco texas leader the guy that owned that cult or whatever the fuck there's a picture of him because he had a band and he had a bc rich fucking chuck shoulder guitar i don't know i'll have to not <laughs> you have to fucking yeah. i've seen it a million times shit, i've seen it a million times i know i know well the I, no i haven't seen it i, I, I even oh, no, that is forgot the dude's name yeah that was another weird wacko it's probably yeah, some that's some some weird, yeah just colts in general dude that shit's weird oh, yeah. as fuck dude where you <laughs> say that those, colts are those bad, okay. would take their lives back and do it again it's just like yeah. how do you trick how do you like twist a human well, into like, that it's like that know? jim jones thing with the kool-aid right like you know that's like the original yeah he got people to give up their all, entire belongings all their money fly to fucking some country in south america right, and yeah. just hang out in a compound until they just kill themselves like that's yeah, yeah, just, yeah it's scary how people are really easily convinced like that completely and now, betray their whole family just be like oh my family doesn't matter anymore because this guy is such a good salesman but, that i need to yeah, and the whole yeah. Scientology thing too, and actually, oh, the whole, yeah, yeah, the whole Kinda persuasion of, related, of right? convincing like, people and, and brainwashing people is on a really, really oh, huge man. scale now yeah, with right? CNN, Fox News. The way they deliver the news, it's so like they just. 
they can't tell you anything matter of factly they gotta they can like coerce you it's so yeah it's for it's for preying on desperation that's really what it is dude people are desperate to have an answer to something and it's like well, they have it. psychology they're like dialing in psychology and know what people are will react to and that's how they um actually well just as far you said scientology and shit so that's I, a requirement you can't know about sci- no, I, I literally like, worked next to a scientology church for a long time really? um in sacramento and uh they would come in and talk to me and shit and i would just be like all right dude bro to bro you're like a normal person i can tell by like talking to you like what's up with it he's all it's not a religion well it, it started like doing in their thing and they were like they were completely like they were just in they were completely like but they were also like they had a sense of logic that kind of freaked me out a little bit because they were logical human beings to a point but they also were like the couples would come in like beautiful like a beautiful man a beautiful woman would come in like they're cut they're a couple and they'd just be like yeah man it's just like it's just a way of thinking man it's not like a, you know they're like it's like they're trying to like downplay like the craziness of it you know like but uh it and was therein insane. lies the, the coercion, man. No, totally. It was and I actually I would walk in there just like just for fun, you know, just like check it out. I wanna like I wanna get like like I wanna like go in there and like have people talk to me, but it was it was completely empty. It was like a fucking almost not a castle, but it was like a, a nine or ten story fucking building downtown Sacramento. Like, oh, like, I've seen that. I know what you're talking yeah, about. Oh, exactly. Yeah. I went in yeah, there and like I was a, like, it's like a Disney palace. <laughs> totally. And, and nobody, like, no nobody's one, there. No one's there except the person behind the front counter. You they went have a, in there. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, because obviously. Oh, they're there. there. They're looking through the little. They got paintings on the wall. They're looking <laughs> I mean, the classic. Gooby they got the shit. eyes like, behind the paintings, dude. Yeah. No, no, they were like, what's your name? I'm like, my name's Frank. How's it going? Like, I would just give them fake names and oh, just be like, I'm not man. fucking telling you. I would not tell them any of my information stuff because they were just totally. There's all sales. So they'll just start selling. You yes. And you but then I got to, to the no, I got to the back of the fucking the place and the mayor of Sacramento at the time. It's him with the uh uh the main cruise no 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 the main uh guy that after Elron hubbard he took over i forget his name uh, miscavige. david Gavin david Mis- miscavige david, david miscavige. miscavige oh yeah. shit so, so it was like it was the- it was fucking the mayor of sacramento with a fucking necklace on of the scientology emblem on his chest the fucking with david miscavige clock? and they were just bros in this picture and i was like whoa like they're in they were like in with the gov- local government in sacramento and i was like whoa like the highest order of government local mm-hmm. government they were in mm-hmm. like Insane, like dude. i was like whoa this is fucking crazy but i also like i definitely like acted like i was interested because it was like i want them to tell me more you know what i was like it's like a it's a it's fun it's like for me it's like it's like ghost hunting or something it's like i just want like tell me like, <laughs> like yeah totally dude like <laughs> act interested like yeah my name's frank dude tell me all the shit like, yeah, totally i just right. wanted all the shit like and it was you're only it was just creepy one like, they wouldn't even let me like buy a book because like I think they knew that I was fucking with them and they wouldn't let me like stay there for much longer and they kind of escorted me out and I was like, all right, well you know it's just it just had a weird culty like oh you're not part of the thing all right well we're out you know get out of here kind of thing and I was like whoa it was interesting though that's exactly what I wanted <laughs> <laughs> bizarre man yeah and just like people that like literally I've talked to that had careers and shit will go into that. There's like a little apartment upstairs for them to stay in. They just give their fucking income to to the church, and then they're just like, "Yeah, this is for the greater good or whatever." And I'm like, "However, you man. can answer the existential question 
yeah that's pretty much what they're looking for i guess yeah but it's just uh, you know just preying on the weak man it's yeah you know that just the little you could see how vulnerable the delivery of information just it's it's dangerous you know and and maybe these news channels are doing it for ratings only but I mean, they get people to buy in. You look at the wars going on now, and not not talking about military war. I'm talking about the division of people and the belief and the politics and the fucking bullshit on Facebook. I mean that that's yeah. all from information delivered. I mean, yeah, you know, totally. with, I definitely agree. You know, you get the six o'clock paper, man. It wasn't important back then. Yeah, yeah. Now, I think now social it's about social media's social yeah. media's made it important. Like all of a sudden, everyone's got their opinions and their but it's, so it's like we started on the whole cult. It's it, they're all one and the same. Yeah. You know, it's it's co- it's it's fucking, you know, corralling people to to believe something for whatever mm-hmm. purpose for whatever Scientology. It's obviously for monetary gain and, you know, other cults, who knows, some sexual perversion. And then, you know, the news channels try to influence politics or, or consumerism. I mean, it's just. Yeah, it's it's dangerous. It's mostly you, just you, cash, you, dude. It's all mostly you know, just cash. Did you know that Prince? I mean, so Prince was like a you know like a what was it? Singer. Oh shit! Oh, it's called, uh, <laughs> God damn it! I'm like blanking on it. Influencer. A Jehovah's Witness. Yeah, oh okay. Oh okay. And so like Prince. And so was Michael Jackson, and of course, you know, there's some controversy. He's probably 100 <laughs> percent most likely uh, over here. You want to yeah. make a point? You shouldn't have said that, well, dude. Okay, whatever. Everybody knows it's not like a secret, Michael Jackson. But what I'm trying to say is that Prince was a Jehovah's Witness, and uh, like I heard that he would like go to people's houses, like, and just be like, show up, like it's like Prince at your door. And it's like I'm doing the, my service, like, and it's like artist you can't talk about music. Prince. You can't talk about like, well, he, he was Prince after that. He came back. Yeah. Oh, he came back. Okay. <laughs> yeah, but like, I mean, imagine that. Dude. The return just, of Prince. You're just like chilling, and you're like, you know, you're like hanging out on like a Saturday afternoon, and just Prince like shows up at your door. Like, yeah, that would like, be wild, dude. That happened like a bunch of times. To people, Pretty, yeah. And that was that was a that was a lucky gold coin for them to get fucking Prince. Yeah, he doesn't want to talk about yeah, music. He probably he wants to talk be like, about dude, way more. Dude, give Jesus me the pamphlets. Hey, can you do controversy? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Come on, do controversy, please. Dude, come on. All right, this is the picture I got real quick. Okay. Um, the Chuck Shoulder guitar. So the Waco. That's the guy. And he's oh, like, come on. Fuck, what? dude. Look at that what the fuck is this? It's, look at it. Looks know, pretty. Dude. Oh, that's not Chuck Shoulder. Yeah, well. That's like some Photoshop. That's a BC Rich, or it's a BC sure. Rich. I think. That's Photoshop. I think it's a Charvel or something. Yeah, yeah. It's not. Yeah, that's it's not similar, Photoshop. It's but not it's BC not. Rich. It's similar. Okay. It's Photoshop. Sorry about that. It's not Photoshop. I can tell. Get by the it. newsletter, bro. I zoomed in. It's like there's no inconsistencies. But yeah, I thought it was a Chuck guitar. Anyways, that would have been funny to link up to the whole cult thing, though, right? If a Chuck guitar was <laughs> at Waco, I don't know. I don't know. That just be con. <laughs> we uh, actually found out about that. We were in Europe, and this is pre-internet, so we don't know what's going on back in the USA. We got on the got on the international flight to come back, and the newspapers said fire at Waco, and everyone was like, "What? Some weird cult?" And I went down to the bottom. I go, "Blue Jays won the World Series. Fuck." <laughs> <laughs> 
So yeah, there's there's a connection. I just connected <laughs> yeah. connected things that you alluded to right there. Yeah, they're oh, alluding. Shit, dude. Oh, okay. It's like uh, Pee Wee Herman, the word of the day. What is it? Is that alluding? that's what he says? Word of the day. Alluding's the word of the day. <laughs> well, I said that earlier, but um... no, I know, but he just said it again, <laughs> dude. Steve just. He's doing callbacks, dude. All right. I think it's uh, uh I gotta Joel I gotta thinks wake I'm up too seven. drunk already. I can no, tell. No, I have DoorDash that's been sitting at my door for uh an hour and Taco 10 Bell? now. Yeah, it's it cold, cold Taco Bell. Bell. <laughs> it's cold Taco Bell. Cold Taco Bell. Why don't you go pick it up? What are you doing? I'm yeah, trying dude. to be a fucking team player. Jesus. I'm not, you know, I have Steve DeGiorgio. <laughs> I'm not gonna fucking get Taco Bell right now. Jesus, no, pick dude. it up. This is go cool. grab it, dude. What are you doing, dude? It's all good. Go all for right. it, dude. We probably lost every listener you ever had by now. <laughs> no, no, it's like we're, we're going to hour it, like dude. they're in it. All right, where we we've, we've we gone at? from the weeds. We're now we're into the bush. All <laughs> right. Should we just fucking call it, guys? It's been what over three hours now, oh, right? Dude, that was yeah. so much fun. Probably the longest interview I've ever done. Dude, yeah, it is actually, dude, and ours I'm fucking too. glad it was you. And it though, was man. so fun. It was like honorable. For yeah, us. we had a great yeah. time, dude. So many good stories, man. It's so fucking, fun. it's definitely the longest yeah. podcast we've had, though. It's definitely oh, yeah. the longest. You, you just, you just took the fucking trophy, dude. Yeah, I told you. You deserve I it. I told you. <laughs> and we, dude, we didn't even move past uh, ninety-three. Really? No, no, we, we got to we got two thousand, two thousand one. So we're gonna have to do a part two sometimes. We have twenty more years to go. We got, we got chunks, dude. That we still gotta oh. fill out, dude. That was only episode <laughs> one. That was Steve episode one. We got a whole if, a whole season to do. Yeah, dude, yeah, yeah, hey, I'm ready oh, to do I'm so that, down, dude. dude. Yeah, I'm if down. You're, Anytime. If you're down, it, you don't have to say anything right now, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> Why? I'm on camera. You want me to be like a death show and just drop silence? <laughs> this is my impression of Anthony. Dude, it's cool, dude. Am I, dude, because I, I keep looking. Right now. Okay, chill, dude. put my, so put my, no put worries. the guests. How do I get the guests up top so it looks like my eyes are open more because I'm looking up instead of down, dude? <laughs> Every, Steve's in the bottom right corner, and I'm just like, oh, dude, I'm looking down at you the whole time, and I just. Anthony's high on pot. I'm I'm high on pot, dude. Yeah, you're yeah, hitting I'm that pot pen like I'm hitting that jewel, dude. It's okay, Always. Though. That's how I got to do it on every episode, dude. Let's just get high, dude. All right. Steve, thank you so much, dude. Thank Thanks, you for man. all this time, dude. This has been a fucking blast, dude. And, so and I'd love to have you to come back on again. It doesn't have to be anytime soon, but we'll we'll talk about it maybe. All right? I think it's frozen. He is frozen. God damn. What a, what a time to get no, frozen. Anthony, it's perfect. Just, just, just finish it. You're All uh, right, dude. You're a champion of swords. I am a champion of sorts. God damn it, dude. Look at that. <laughs> at least he's he's frozen dude, a good, good fucking at the uh, end. He froze at the end. Perfect, dude. All right, dude. Well, thank you guys so much. He is a champion. Uh, oh, shit, dude. No, that's cool. It's perfect. Look how perfect right. that was. That's perfect. See? Thank right. you. I love welcome. you guys. Yes. I love Me you. Too. I had such a great time tonight. We love Casey. you all. Joel missed the professor for the end. Love you in Bangladesh. Bangladesh and uh, stuff and yeah. Shout out to Hit. Bangladesh. Shout out to all you motherfuckers for hanging out for this long. Uh, hit us up on the socials. Hit all the buttons, all the bells, and uh, love cool your, Taco Bell. Love yourself and your family members and your friends. And we'll see you. Oh no, dude, we're taking a break, right? We'll see you after Christmas. We'll after you Christmas, we're after, after after the the Christ Mass. We'll see you. Rock on, y'all.